Welcome to the podcast that's dedicated to making you a faster cyclist, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee, and if you're joining us on YouTube, you can probably see this. If you're joining us via the podcast, you can hear this, of course, but we have our head coach, Chad Timmerman, with us. How are you doing, Chad? I'm doing well. Hi, everybody. Uh, we have our CEO, Nate Pearson. Hello. And we have Cannondale and Trainer Road's Amber Pierce. Hi, everyone. Nice mug plug there. That was really good, Amber. Uh-huh. <laughs> the mugs you can't Here's buy. Everyone. <laughs> yeah, the, the the special trainer road mugs. Yeah, the, the sought after ones. So you can, first of all, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Uh, we love making it every week. We put a lot of work into making sure that it does make you faster. It gives you everything that you need to make yourself faster. That's really the, the focus behind this. And you can also join us on YouTube. It's usually Thursdays at 8 a.m. Pacific. But while we're figuring out this remote experience, it's not live for the time being. But shortly thereafter, it will be live up on YouTube, and you can see that as well. So it uh, could be a little, uh, add a little more context, and we'd love to have you join us like, like that. Uh, first things first, also, if you are watching right now, you should go down and hit the like button. It's the little thumbs up. That would really help this video so that more people listen to it. And if you subscribe to our YouTube channel, you would get notifications on the videos that we release all the time because we release tons of awesome stuff. So uh, all things that make you faster. That's the litmus test for all of it. So uh, Nate. Uh, we should probably go into an announcement because if you subscribe to our YouTube channel, you definitely saw the YouTube, or the group workouts live stream where you and I and DC Rainmaker did that. Uh, you have chances are you've seen us talk about or even heard us talk about on the previous episode group workouts. Tons of people are loving this feature. It's awesome. And we're already improving it. Uh, Nate, do you want to share how? Yes. Yeah, so big update Monday. We're going to uh, have the ramp test be part of group workouts. But the cool part we're going to launch it is we're all going to do a ramp test together along with Pete. And yes, uh, it's going to be insane. So, uh, we, we're going to stream it live on YouTube and you guys can, uh, watch us and talk poo poo. And I think, <laughs> I think we're all going to get PRs pretty much. Well, it's going to be crazy. Us. Not all of us. <laughs> no. Yeah. I yeah, don't know. Because it may not be all of us. <laughs> not all time, but this season PRs. Yeah. Yeah. Chad, you're you're coming back from an illness. Uh, yeah, I had 11 days off the bike. Sounds, chest infection. These sound like and a, it's taking its time clearing, but I'm good now. These yeah. sound like excuses. Anyone? Any other excuses? Would anyone like to say? Uh, I'm, I, I'm 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 retired. I just want to make sure that that's that's clear. <laughs> uh, I'm fresh, and I'm going to PR this. That's my excuse right there. I'm going to PR too. But see, here's yeah, the thing. It's, it's not about the excuses, right? It's just about seeing where you are on the day. So I'm oh, just yeah. excited to see where I'm at right now and have a benchmark to start, yeah, measuring my progress. Mm-hmm. Amber, uh, so yeah, despite all the, the jest, the, the <laughs> jesting that goes on here between us with, you know, the, the who's going to improve the best, which definitely makes it fun, sure. Oh, but you bring up a really good point. And I actually had a call with a Trainer Road athlete, a uh, Trainer Road subscriber, uh, just yesterday. And we went over things because uh, he was really concerned that he wasn't improving with, uh, like, over uh, the past six months, he hasn't seen significant improvement, but his training has been really consistent. So we talked to him about that very thing. And, like, the, the whole, like, testing anxiety and, like you said, kind of, like, attaching too much to it, Yeah, uh, we can easily fall into that trap when we just remember that just let performance be performance. And if we come into that ramp test and we make sure it's a capacitive effort and we, you know, do our best to not fixate on that sort of stuff that, you know, where we tie it in too much, then exactly. Uh, I think that it can help a lot of people. But in this case, it's going to be a blast uh, for for all of us doing this live stream. We want you guys to join us. It'll be a ton of fun. It's going to be 1 p.m. Pacific. And that's uh, so this following Monday here that's coming up. So uh, if you subscribe to our YouTube channel, you can hit a notifications bell. And then that will notify you when we go live on YouTube so you won't miss it. 
Uh, should be a ton of fun. Uh, and I, it's going to be fun to see how the ramp test works there, you know, in the group workout environment. And I think that if anything, we've all mentioned this, how motivating it is to have group workouts and to move through like uh, workouts that are really tough to finish workouts that are really long or days where you're just not feeling it. And it makes it so much easier to complete that workout when you have a group with you. And I can't help but feel like a lot of people are going to PR on the ramp test because of this, that, you know, perhaps they weren't performing to their potential before, or something else might be holding them back. Having other people help them with it now, they're just going to skyrocket. That, so. And I think people will actually start looking forward to the ramp tests more so than yeah. ever before. <laughs> Yeah, it is going to be a blast. Nate, you're going to say something? As long as I can see Chad suffer, I'll look forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> you won't be able to because we just saw this when we did the group workout with Chad the other day. He's in the arrow position and all you oh, see no, is no, the top no. of his head. He's I'm so not, disciplined. I'm not going to test an arrow. I, I just I, I have enough okay. challenges in, in front of me right now. I'm going to sit nice and tall. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Are you going to be on your road bike then, Chad? For no, I'll still be on the TT bike, bike which, which will suck in its own way, but I'm still going to sit up. <laughs> <laughs> all right cool i mean the rest of us are all on our road bikes right yeah no funny business going on cool <laughs> okay sounds good well that chad's already got two built-in excuses right there so the, we have this ex plus they're not excuses this is, this is not a pass fail <laughs> thing it's just gonna see where i'm at and i just uh, I, I, I like i seriously just upped my ftp prior to getting sick so it's like the worst timing in terms of what's gonna happen <laughs> but who knows timing. maybe Maybe, yeah, maybe I'll surprise myself because I've had a couple of good workouts over the last couple of days that have shown me I'm back and maybe uh, that I'm you know, now that I'm healed from the, the illness, maybe I, that, that recovery served me well. That's a good time to do the test though, is like you're back from illness, you're not sick anymore, and then you get your new zones because I've had it mm -hmm. where illness doesn't impact me or it takes out like a month out of my training and you have to step back. Yeah, so sure. That's what I mean, it is a really good time and it's it, we joke. Uh, and there will be poopoo -poo talking by me in the ride, but, uh, no. take your ego away from your result, like, and just, yeah. it just is what it is. And then you get better training and then you get faster in the long run rather than really being upset. Oh, the other cool thing is our, uh, our FTPs will be shown live. Like what your FTP would be if you stopped the test right then will be live, uh, in the group workout. And then also for everybody else, there's a setting where now you can see it on the desktop app in the little summary stats, which we also added recently. It's next to your picture. If you click that, it slides out or on the uh, regular app, it slides down. And you can uh, just not have that window open if you don't wanna see what your FTP would be. But if you do, you can see it live, which is cool. Cause it's, I feel like there's always like, you're like, oh, two more, I can do one more. And you just push yourself a little bit harder. I think that's the best I don't wanna see the number. Added. Yeah, I don't wanna see the number. For me, I, I find it to be like a, a distraction if anything, so. I like I like going through and just trying to focus on emptying things. Flying right? blind, just going as hard as I yeah, yeah. I th it's it's kind of funny. There's probably two different. It probably resonates with different people, and that's why we built that feature so that you can hide it or you can show it mm -hmm. uh, for that very reason. Just because uh, for some it's what they need, but for me, I feel like they're like if I was to put a goal down, who's to say that's my max, and who's to say that's where I should actually perform? But the one thing I can't be sure of is if I do focus everything on getting the most out of myself with, you know, and just whatever that is, then I'll, I'll get there. You're exactly yeah. right. But though. That's, it's, that's it's so subjective because I did it back in the day with the group classes. I did a couple and they weren't very popular blind FTP tests. And it, some people actually outperformed what they thought they would have done, um, saw bigger threshold gains than they probably would have seen. So it worked for some, didn't work for others. That's with yeah. pacing though, which is hard because you were doing the 20 minute it test. It is hard. 
Yeah. And that pacing part, that's where somebody, you can really get messed up with pacing. Uh, Jonathan, I think you should just put 350 as your goal. And then when you fail, you fail. <laughs> 350 or bust. <laughs> well, I think you shoot high, right? If you, uh, Well, yeah, exactly. If you do show, if you do want to show it, I think you should have a uh, pretty big goal, but don't feel bad if you don't hit it. Just to John's point. So do point. you want, if you do, do you don't do like, sh- go ahead. I was going to say, do you want me to show it? Uh, so then people can see it. What do you think that would make oh, it more interesting for this? For this, thing? you have to, John. Yes. Understood. Understood. Yeah. You could put tape over the screen or something. Uh, although <laughs> sure, I think, right? yeah, yeah. I think maybe everyone else will be able to see it, but you might not be able to see it uh, the, with the way we have it. So you could still be in luck. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's all yeah. about just meeting yourself on the day and giving a hundred percent of what you have on that day. I want to finish the, that thought though, what John said, because it is important. Uh, if you, if you come in with too low of a goal, that's exactly what could happen. You're like, oh, I hit my 300 even, so I'm going to end, right? And but before I was 296, and I'm like, oh, that's it. But if you hit a, if you, maybe if you just don't come in with any goal and you're just like, you keep going one more, it's kind of like that one more minute or 10 more seconds thing that you do. And you're like, can I get one more? Okay, I got one more point. Can I get an extra point? Okay, I can do one more. If I got one before, I can do it again. It's that kind of mindset that you have rather than a, I am going to stop at this goal is can I see that number tick up just a little more and more and more specific goals are mindset. not appropriate on FTP day. Yeah, no, yeah. but also, I mean, I, I think that taking that uh, framework of just curiosity is a great approach to training and racing in general too, because there's so much beyond our control. There's so many things that can happen, you know, that we can't foresee that I think sometimes, um, yeah, it's, it's just about like, huh, let's see what I can do today. Let's go, let's go see what I can do today. And that way you're not imposing any limits on yourself. And it's just about that genuine curiosity of, of let, let's see what I got. Let's do this. Yeah. There's a time and place for that, right? Like it has to, I feel like if you, it's that balance that you run of being structured, but then also leaving opportunity to outpace whatever your expectations are. And it's also worth saying like, and and this is always what I try to remind folks with the ramp test is the goal of the ramp test isn't to pad your ego more with a larger number. The goal of the ramp test isn't to do anything other than give you an accurate training benchmark so you can get the most out of your training. Like that, that's what we're really going for with this, right? Which, and, and, but with the ramp test, that means it's a capacitive effort and a capacitive means truly capacitive, like everything that you can give. So it's tough. And that's not the goal, but go ahead, Chad. I was just gonna say, I agree with Amber. I think the philosophy of, huh, let's see what I can do today should be applied to every day to some extent. I mean, sure, you're going to go into it with greater confidence, knowing that you've done the right training, know that you're in the right place at the right time. So your expectations might be set a little higher, but it's always going to come down to, hmm, what can I do today? Let's see. And if I do that every day, I'll get, I'll put myself in a hole. <laughs> so, so perhaps that's something that works for some and not others. Yeah. Yep. Well, you know, you, it doesn't mean that you don't go into the day with a plan. Like some days you're like, today's my active recovery day. That's not the day to see how deep you can dig. Right. But you know, on race day, you're going to go into the race with a plan. You may have to shift that plan on the fly, but if you go into it with the overall mindset of like, okay, here's my plan, but bigger picture, I just really want to see what I can do today. Um, then, then it just, it makes it more easy to go with the flow and adapt the plan on the fly if you need to. John hey, talked we've been about, talking over you. <laughs> Sorry, <it's, laughs> I just did it again. <laughs> I don't care. Um, it's a long podcast, so I'll have time. Uh, what, <laughs> what John said about uh, it's not the goal to like get the biggest number. We sh- I say for probably 90% of people, there is a ego associated with it. And when you get another number, you do feel good. So like, 
I just want to be clear on that. Feel, yeah. Yeah. Like don't, when you, when you do improve, like it just feels good and we understand that. But if you don't improve or you go down, especially in your Chad's situation where you have sickness, um, don't like make it ruin. It's more like a, okay, this is where we're at. Let's constantly improve now. And let's hit like, what am I going to do process wise in the future to be able to make it so that the next test I have an, I have a more successful rather than drawing, uh, dwelling on the past, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Hitting a big number doesn't necessarily mean it's about your ego. I mean, there's nothing wrong with validating all of the hard work that you've put in to get there. So definitely give yourself that pat on the back, but just remember, it's not about, this isn't a character metric. This isn't about who you are as a person and your worth as a person or anything like that. It's just, this is a benchmark. And sometimes that benchmark is like, heck yeah, I've been crushing it. And sometimes it's, man, that cold really took it out of me. So, you know, just it's, and then yeah, very next day, like, okay, now I know what I need to do. It's a little bit more information. You've learned something about what needs to happen next. And you just dive into that next day and Hey, let's go see what I can do now. What, uh, what are all your FTPs right now, John? I'm 310 right now. Uh, Chad? 305. Amber? I think I'm 237. I tested a little while ago. I'm 342, but the spicy part is, uh, Pete is 340. <laughs> And we're the exact same weight. And I just know I'm going to be staring at Pete. And if like, that's going to give me an extra 30 seconds, I bet. Because I can't also, Pete, stop before him. Pete might be like the the most, he, he might trash talk more often and better than anybody else too. So after, after the first five minutes, I'm not talking. I'm not saying a single word. <laughs> just turning it all off, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, let it be known. So very well said, by the way, Amber and Nate on on kind of wrapping up with context on that. And then also let it be known. We're probably going to give you a terrible example of wrapping too much ego into things on Monday, but it'll be fun and come join for your entertainment. So Right. There's a whole difference between doing it in a lighthearted, joking manner that makes the whole experience more fun and like really taking it too seriously and too much to heart. For sure. Uh, along the lines of group workouts really quick, like I've noticed, uh, which first of all, by the way, I've had, uh, I've been doing group workouts every day. And this week, uh, I've experienced so one rider in one of my groups got a flat tire. And then I actually got a flat tire yesterday while riding on the rollers. Uh, because it's karma, I know, you right? talked about it. <laughs> I talked about it. Uh, but it's just funny that group rides, uh, you know, group workouts, even in a virtual world, they still get flats like this, right? Yeah, it's, it's funny how it works. But um, but man, it's been so helpful to have the motivation to go through. So I've been in a recovery week and I, I've heard this from a lot of people that in a recovery week, it's tough for them with motivation a lot of the time. You know, it's not like throwing difficult intervals that that require their focus and constant adjustment throughout the whole time. And it's been so cool to have these rides where I've been riding with different people. I just went to the forum and posted up my calendar more or less in the forum there. There's a, and actually we should explain this because I don't know if you've explained it very clearly. If you go to the forum and all you have to do is search for group workouts, you'll see a forum thread that will basically say group workouts calendar ride scheduling. And you can click on that. And when you click in there, you can see that there's actually a Google calendar that's created. And that Google calendar, there are train road users that are constantly putting their workouts into that. And the way you do that, it's all explained in that post is you just, you know, create that calendar event and then invite that calendar and then it's on there. And then it's cool because other people join in and you get to meet people from around the world and, and ride with them. And it's it's an absolute blast. And it's been super helpful for me. And we kind of, uh, you know, looking into this and like looking at, at 
at all the different things that you can improve with your training just by training in a group like this with group workouts, it's, it's pretty substantial. Like there, there's some awesome stuff. Nate and I, Nate's been doing a ton of them too. All of mm -hmm. us really. The forum is called our post is called group workout room code sharing and Chad McNeese. Yeah. Thank you. He's the one who set that up. Okay. So changing gears here really quick, Nate. Uh, so first of all, lots of people are dealing with event cancellations, event rescheduling, everything else like that. Nate, you mentioned that you use plan builder to restructure your, your calendar the other day in our group chat there on Instagram, you were mentioning it, uh, and you're, you're going aggressive. First I'm of go all. Yeah. I'm making a really bad decision. <laughs> and I just wanted to share this with everybody because <laughs> I know everyone knows it. Okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> a, a lot of people are, uh, motivated. And so I don't know, I, with the group workouts, I know that increases my motivation to do, like I can do a double day, like no problem now it's, it's easy for me to do a double day. And what I've done is, uh, I use plan builder and I set it to expert. So it took away my, my, uh, base, which means I'm just going right into build and specialty. And I've done a lot, a lot, a lot of base. Um, so what, what I'm doing is uh, short power build high volume and then short power build criterium to try to peak for nationals. I know that's a pretty like optimistic thing that we're going to be racing in. What is it? August 1st, I think is uh criterium nationals or something. Yeah, basically very uh, end of July. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm keeping the hope alive as well. And Chad's doing the 40K TT, which and, uh, and Chad's, races. yeah, but I mean, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to do the TT maybe, but you're going to smoke me in that, Chad. I just know it. Uh, so maybe I just won't do it. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but really I'll, I'll get smoked in my age group. I can't put power out on my TT bike unless I figure that out. The, the, the 35 plus, they're just so, so fast. I need to put out like 400 watts to be competitive. Yeah. Um, Anyways, and then I'm going to add Pettit plus one, six days a week. So it ends up to like 15 hours of riding and my TSS six weeks is going to be like 110, which I'm pretty sure after one week, That's I'm going to be your, like your average okay. daily average. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's going to be really, uh, really hard, but I, I just, I, I'm going to share this experience with everyone because you hear this now and some people listen to the podcast like week after week, <clears throat> two episodes from now, you'll be like, I'm destroyed. Like giving up cycling, <laughs> going to become a CrossFitter. <laughs> like, this is over. Yeah. And I know that I'm doing this and I'm just trying to see, basically I'm trying to see like how far I can push my body. Like, was it just me before saying that? Like I had this like 10 hour a week, uh, thing on me where I, I could have just dug a little deeper or can I actually push myself a little bit farther? And I'm using this time of no racing to see what happens in there. And I'm going to try to listen to my body and, uh, I know I'm going to be tired, but I don't want to make myself extremely tired or, you know, over overreach so much that it becomes overtraining. Does that make this sense? This is how, yeah, mm -hmm. to me. Yeah. yeah. But I think it's a good time to do it right now because I don't have any races. So if I do mm -hmm. totally screw the pooch, like I'll have a couple of weeks to, I could take two weeks off and it's not going to have a huge impact on let's say 2021. But this is, this is a logical progression for riders who have achieved a certain level. They have to dangle a new line in the water and see if something bites, if they can pull this off. And as you mentioned, this is a great time to dangle that line because it's, it's very low risk in terms of uh, race, race performance. Yeah, that's another thing. Like, how many years can I do eight hours a week of structured intervals and expect to still increase? There's going to be some time where I have to add more volume, right? I either have to, and that's my choice. Like, can my lifestyle and my body well, my body is because of my lifestyle. Can it take that more time? And also, I don't know about you all, but I'm getting more sleep right now because I don't have to get up as early besides podcast days where I can get Same. up at like 7.45 a.m. and then boom, eight o'clock and I'm at work in my bed, which is nice. 
Yeah, that, and I think it's a smart approach. <clears throat> We've covered this for the past two weeks. We're going to cover it just again, really. <laughs> sorry. Well, we'll see, right? Um, but we'll cover this again just because we continue to get questions on this really quick. If your event's been canceled, what do you do? And one person, I remember them saying they were like, uh, you didn't build this into Plan Builder. And it was like, well, you know, we didn't know that somebody would eat a bat and then all this would happen. So like, <laughs> you know, it's like, it is built and in. Be, <laughs> it is and, built and in. Like, well, sure, but like I think they were talking about basically like a COVID switch with a oh. plan builder, like basically like COVID my plan, right? And 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 flip it around. So um, I think everyone would be pretty upset at us if we you know spent time building something like that for some strange eventuality instead of building the features that you all want uh, outside of it. But you can still absolutely do it. That's what why plan builder is so awesome. Uh, so a couple things just on guidance on that for what you're doing, uh, kind of along the lines of what Nate and Chad are doing, still building toward your event, hoping it's going to happen. Uh, even if your event has been canceled and you don't, let's say your event's been canceled and you don't have something that is going to happen shortly thereafter that like you're going to an audible, right? Like you're going to move your a race to something that's just, you know, maybe a month later or two months later because something has been canceled. Um, if that's the, if, if that's not the case, if basically your events been canceled and you don't know when your a event is going to happen again, I still think it's a great opportunity for you to carry on one of the, this is one option, carry on toward peak fitness, uh, toward whatever that goal would be, go through the process of going through base build and specialty like that. And then you can drop back down and then rebuild for something, but it also can be a great time. Like we talked about to revert, to start fresh, go back to base, build from where you currently are. And it can also be a great opportunity for you to kind of throw something crazy in there. Like if you're a triathlete, do the crit plan, right? Like put a fictional crit on your calendar within two months if you've always wanted to do that. Because once again, it's, it's low consequence in terms of you won't, it's not like you're going to get caught out with crazy, uh, you know, off the wall fitness that's nothing related to what you want to do well, if you don't have an event coming up right after it. And also consider alternative or alternate outcomes. I mean, worst case for Nate and for me is that we train this hard and we build this great level of fitness and nationals doesn't happen, but we're super fit in August. That's, that's not a bad outcome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The, the other thing, John, I want to mention that I forgot is dirty Kansas got uh, pushed out till September. It's like mid September, which means it's like five or six weeks after nationals, which to me, Chad is I plan on taking a full week off and then doing a rebuild and kind of like longer stuff. But if, Oh, this, you always do this, right? You're like, you do this math and you're like, okay, if I'm 120 pounds on a 400 watt FTP training 20 hours a week, I'm going to kill it. And none of it works out. But, uh, it gives me five weeks then of like doing some longer rides and building towards dirty Kansas. So I want to get in. I really want to do that. If media slot or charity slot, um, it's weird because everyone was deferred like, but then I know a lot of people can't make it. So there might be some slots there. Uh, I'm trying to get one. So if anyone knows, uh, message me on Instagram and I will, I am down to do dirty cans of this year. I think that that's such a good pivot though, because you're going to have the type of fitness that applies itself really well to that. And all you're going to have to do is extend your time in the saddle a bit and get yourself ready for a 200 mile day, which is going to suck anyway. It's not like anything you're going <laughs> to pick up in that five weeks is going to make a pass or fail sort of difference. So yeah. really you're just going to benefit yourself over the course of that taper into it and potentially have the best day you would have had. I think so too. And I, I think I'll do the specialty of the century plan, uh, like the latter half of that. So instead of having for, for nationals, I'll have lots of short power, like repeats anaerobic stuff. It kind of switches it to, uh, some threshold and sweet spot long work. Mm -hmm. And my, I'm sure my mind will be like, I am done with short power and I will want to do sweet spot and stuff. So that'll be, that'll be really cool. And maybe I can do some longer TR outside workouts. 
uh, like those four hour ones and kind of switch the Sunday workout with that. That's my, that's my plan at least. And we'll see. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, and that's probably what plan builder will end up doing for you is put, putting in the latter half of that century plan. That's what I would expect it to do at least. Yep. So pretty cool stuff. Um, exciting. And, and also plan builders in the app on Mac and windows now. So you can just use it directly in there, uh, or you can go to the website and do it. And eventually it will be coming to our mobile apps. That's the plan too. Uh, but right now it's not in there. So you can check it out there. Uh, last thing, Beers with Chad this Friday, uh, so tomorrow, uh, that's going to be April 10th. And it happens at 2 p.m. Pacific. It's like a happy hour uh, that you can join us. And it's not an hour. That's for darn sure. But, but it is very, uh, uh, very happy. It's very happy. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Happy hour. Yes, you'll get to choose. Uh, People will get to choose what beer Chad drinks. You'll have options. We'll put those up on Instagram today. So you can go to Instagram and then just go to Trainer Road. Find us on there and you'll be able to vote. And then that's what Chad's going to drink. At least that's what he'll start with. Maybe I feel like I already know the outcome (laughs) of that one. It's it's too interesting. So I don't even plan on refrigerating the second option. (laughs) (laughs) got it um so then and then we just you bring all the questions that you probably if you're just to sit down and joke around with your friends and chad and ask silly questions like you would when you're just relaxing a happy hour that's what we do because it's happy hour so same thing a good opportunity for all of us that are socially distanced right now to be able to connect and just have some fun together so you should join us because i'm not going to be on it this time nate you're going to be there with Chad. Right? I'm going to be the host and I am going to drink alcohol. And I just want to say uh, <laughs> anything like don't do what I do. This is not <laughs> this is not responsible drinking or something that anyone on the planet should do. He's uh, not no one under example. 21 should join. Uh, we, <laughs> I, I'm pretty like we don't swear on this podcast, but if I drink some on this and I'm with Chad, it might fly pretty easily. Uh, and two, it's so going to be an open and, display of your worst habits. I'm sure of it. Uh, <laughs> no one should actually even watch it. So we have zero streaming. That'd be good. But the, the best part of this, I think, is Amber gets in the chat and she just flies jokes like over and over and over again. I think it's oh, yeah. more funny than uh, like Chad getting buzzed is pretty entertaining too. But they, the, the chat from Amber is fun. Amber's comments are the single most distracting thing about that. I'm trying to stay on on point and I get lost yeah. reading her comments and questions and jokes. It happens. It happens. <clears throat> there, I'll, there, I'll be in the comments this time. So There are some comments that Chad said last time that we will need to address uh, when we're halfway through our drink. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. Very inflammatory, Don't unrealistic <laughs> statements were said. Uh, you got to save it. You got to save it for, for fears of Chad. One yeah. other thing too that you have that to ask because we had it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we had a we had a good question to come in, but uh, we didn't have the time to address it. You have to ask Chad about stories of delinquency from his youth, like Ooh. when he like the things that Chad did that he probably shouldn't have done, but they're just dumb teenager things that he did. So you'll have to. You'll have you're to plenty old, so the statute of limitations is gone. Yeah, I'm sure yeah, that it's fine. not going to paint me in the most favorable <laughs> light, though. I did some. Questionable things. Uh, this is a understood. Understood. Tucker, make sure you bleep that out. We got it. I don't think it was a complete word, though. I think it was just Still do like it. a sound. Still do it because yeah. kids go, What does that mean? Yeah, exactly. I'm sure, they know, but yeah, oh, fair enough. Fair enough. So, we're going to cut this tail off hard and go straight into <laughs> questions right now. Um, we're drifting. Uh, this one is from Mr. Cat3 Memes of all folks. So, uh, 
serious question though despite i know uh, which by the way he's a memer on youtube or not on youtube on instagram uh very clever interesting stuff in fact he just posted the other day that collarbones have convened that i think they're in favor of of the of social distancing and they don't <laughs> want it to come back <laughs> so okay uh, he says hey all love the podcast and big kudos to your team for putting together group workouts so quickly over the years, I've noticed that my body is naturally better at shorter three to eight ish minute intervals than it is at longer threshold in, or threshold efforts. So that sounds like VO two to me, right, Chad? Mm-hmm. That's exactly three to eight. That is, yeah. So he says, in addition to shorter efforts uh, tending to feel really good for me, I rarely fail VO two max workouts, whereas threshold and even sweet spot intervals are much harder and usually have me barely hanging on by the last effort. This is also really common, right, Nate? Like we we've, this is we hear this pretty regularly. I've experienced this too. Um, uh, especially when I first started training. So he says, uh, I feel more fatigued for longer after these workouts, talking about the more steady state, lower intensity ones, but I normally bounce back quite quickly from a VO two max effort. Less fatigue means more training. And I've noticed bigger overall gains when focusing on shorter efforts because I'm able to ride harder more often. My target events this summer are some time trials and hill climbs in August, fingers crossed. So I definitely need to improve my steady state abilities. I love how he just spent that whole time saying like, this is what works for me. This is awesome. This is what I do well. So I'm going to pick events that have nothing to do with that. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, he says, my question is whether it might in this case be more productive to, when he says in quotes, train to my strengths and do less threshold work in favor of more shorter efforts and thus less fatigue. Or is there just no avoiding that all need to start prioritizing longer work and perhaps lower lowering the volume to deal with the resultant stress that comes with it. Thanks again, and keep up the good work. <clears throat> a, a great question. Um, Super good. And we have a ton of stuff to cover on this. Chad, it's probably best if you kick it off, and then Amber and I can jump in with other info okay. too. Yeah. And yeah, so there, also please jump in. There are <laughs> a lot of tacks we could take here, and a lot of uh, fodder for conversation, but let's just angle this from becoming the best time trialist. I mean, those are your goal events, so let's just talk time trials. Um, <clears throat> it's funny what Jonathan just said. He's basically picking the thing he finds himself to be the worst at. So I think <laughs> any season or any plan, uh, any, any pursuit event needs to begin with the simple question of do your goals play to your strengths? And that doesn't make the decision for you. It just decides your training approach. So in this, in this case, he's going to have to train his weaknesses into new strengths, or he's going to have to pick new goals and he's picked his goals. So we're going to target making weaknesses strengths. Um, and then, and I think a second question is that can his existing strengths surprisingly suit this goal? Can he make his, his propensity for these high intensity efforts work over something that should be a steady state effort? Can he go really hard and then back off and then go really hard and then back off? Is that, is that an applicable approach? And it's a really good question. Um, and I know Jonathan's brother, they had a long conversation, so we're going to seriously nerd out on this, but I'm going to hit the cycling science before we hit the uh, more, more physics side of things. Cool. Um, and there are, there are a few notable studies. There's, there's actually several, I'm going to blow through them just to draw a point out, out of each one. Um, one study, uh, Louis Passfield and Kangley did it where they actually modeled and then they actually, and then they tested the theory. So they looked at mathematical models, had formed expectations and then applied them to actual situations. The goal being to see if, uh, an evenly paced or a, or a variably paced approach would be better on a variable grade course. So not a flat course. The goal was to, to hold 255 Watts as their average power. And they could vary from that. What turned out to be plus or minus 
So in the case of 255 watts, they could drop all the way down to 186, bump all the way up to 325 watts. And they were doing this on grades between 5 and 15%, so not subtle grades at all. They, and also they, a big variance. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And there, were, there, there, there have been studies where they'll do this on subtler grades, but the takeaway in both cases is that the greater the gradient changes, the greater the room for improvement with a variable pacing strategy. Okay, so in this case, it was a short, short TT. It was only a 4K course, so it took uh, most of these riders in the ballpark of seven minutes, and they shaved about 12 seconds over it. So you're thinking, okay, variable pacing pattern makes sense in this case, but then you have to ask yourself, in the case of a 40K TT, even if you're, gonna, if you're super fast and you're gonna do 50 minutes or you're reasonably fast and you're gonna do 60, can you make that seven-minute effective approach work for you know, an extended period of time? I'm, I'm gonna venture to guess probably not. So another study, really Little Swain and Branch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah. The, I'm sorry. I'm just thinking of that. Like, it, it, just thinking of doing a 40 KTT and just like <laughs> surge and then like lower surge. Like, oh, that sounds so terrible. Yeah. It would just hurt seven, so bad. Seven minutes seems like the, the the best case scenario for something like this to work. Absolutely. Like kind Absolutely. of like the peak so of VO2 max. For a prologue, this makes perfect sense. For a 40 KTT, not so much. Okay, then Little Swain and Branch, they extended this out to hour-long time trials. Um, and, and what they found was with a variable pacing strategy versus a steady state pacing strategy, there was no, and this is quote, no additional physiological stress, end quote. So it wasn't any harder on the body physiologically, but the variances in uh, effort and probably grade, I don't remember what the grade changes were, were plus or, fi plus or minus 5%. So there were subtle changes. This is basically what you're gonna encounter on a really evenly paced time trial anyway. And then another study by Palmer, Noakes, and Hawley, they, they had riders do 150 minutes of low intensity work before they did a 20K time trial power. And they found higher TT power, lower TT time if they did a steady state effort. But if the effort, that two and a half hour effort preceding it was stochastic in nature, changing, then the effect on the, the post low intensity work was uh, detrimental. They, they didn't perform as well on that 20K TT. And then finally, um, Bernard and colleagues did a constant versus variable intensity uh, cycling approach to a, basically running off the bike. So they did it prior to running and they saw what the effects of changing the intensity over the course of the ride would have on running. And they found that the concert, constant effort rides significantly improved run performance afterwards. And it was a big variance. I mean, they had riders going between about 70 and 90% of their max aerobic power which is roughly you know, 85 to 100% of FTP. So that's a pretty big variance. And the impact on running was not favorable. Hmm. This is interesting because I mean, <clears throat> so triathletes that are listening to this, they just went, oh yeah, duh, right? Because the, yeah. they've experienced that, sure. But at the same time, it, it's something that in practice is pretty tough to follow a lot of the time. Like it's just um, if you have to preserve something or if you're floating around threshold like that, surging over threshold, dropping under, surging over, dropping under. It's really tough. Like, uh, so let's remove speed. Let's remove everything else from it and just talk about average power. It's pretty tough going about that approach to keep your average power where it mm -hmm. needs to be. And, and the longer, assuming in a, 
in a weird perfect world, like a flat, uh, you know, a perfectly flat time trial with zero variance to it, really your average power is going to, you know, that that's really going to be, and also aerodynamics, assuming that's constant, average power is going to decide when you get to wherever you're getting. So, and, and the duration of the yeah. event matters a lot. So, I mean, you can do this for seven minutes, but try to draw that out or drag that out to an hour or several hours. And it gets even more consequential, consequential. Okay, and then, so this next part, I've got just one more study, but some really interesting takeaways. And this is basically, uh, I'm gonna call a spade a spade. It's it, it's an endorsement for my own 40K time trial plans. So- <laughs> Hey, it's a safe place for that sort of thing, Chad. <laughs> actually, a lot of work, a lot of work went into those plans, all the plans, but especially yep, those, because it's near and dear to my heart. Um, so, so basically here, we're talking adaptation versus specificity. And I'm gonna look at uh, a, a study titled Training Techniques to Improve Endurance Exercise Performances. And this looked at a couple similar studies and I think they repeated it, tried to replicate it and found similar findings. So, you know, it stands up even better because of that. So Westgarth and Taylor, Lindsay and Weston, they took competitive male cyclists and these were high volume riders. They were riding 300 kilometers per week. So we're talking on the order of 180, 185 miles a week, reasonably high VO2 maxes, 65 in the, in the ballpark of 65. So milliliters per minute per kilogram. And, and they had a peak work rate in the ballpark of 400 watts or five watts a kilogram. And that's basically the final minute of a ramp test effectively. All they did was take out 15 kilometers of their weekly volume and replaced it with six to 12 sessions of riding one to two times a week, doing six to nine efforts for five minutes each at 86% of VO2 max, which is just slightly over FTP. So they were just having them ride a little above FTP, really short recoveries, one minute, because they were trying to suss out their sustained, or they were trying to pose them against sustained high intensity training. And both studies found significant results. Most interestingly, when Holly compared these studies, he found that a four to 5% increase in their peak sustainable power, so their TT power, didn't increase past six high intensity sessions. Same went for their 40K TT simulation times. When they actually simulated a time trial, they saw improvements of about three to 5%. So man, it seemed like a lot, but it is quite a lot, especially when you're at the pointy end of things. So I took three takeaways from this. Um, and this is back when I was designing these programs because this is an older study. One, if you look at workouts like Tweed and Nightcap and Stromlo, Budawang, these are all done at 102% of FTP. Then there are efforts like Mansfield and Ainsley done at 105%, and these are all found in the 40K TT specialty plans, and they're all found one time a week, much like what's going on right here. They only happen for five weeks in a row during the loading cycle. Recovery week interrupts that briefly. And then there are taper versions. So, so basically, I mean, I, I, I relied, I leaned heavily on this study and its outcomes. Mm-hmm. And the takeaway too is that the response eventually diminishes. That's just that's just the nature of it. So you have to figure out, you know, how long can I maintain this response, and then when does it start to taper off? Which is why these are reserved for the last possible moment, just a couple weeks out or several weeks out from your primary event. And then finally, um, they saw no changes in their VO2 max. They didn't get improvements in aerobic capacity. Rather, these riders saw improvements of 90 to 120 seconds over the course of a 40K TT. So we're talking a minute and a half, two minutes. And it was down to the fact that their absolute work rates came up. Instead of working around 300 watts, they could work at 330 watts. And they're higher, they, had, they saw higher relative work rates. And instead of working at 72% of their peak power, now they're working at 76% of their peak power. So basically, That's... no changes in aerobic capacity. They just elevated their stamina. 
They just got really good at the very thing they needed to do, which just shines a light on the fact that specialization is in the pursuit of performance capabilities, not necessarily physiological ones. Hmm. So the idea, the idea being is that first we build a high FTP, you know, you increase your lactate clearance, you raise your VO2 max, you optimize cadence, all of these physiological aims, and then you train to specifically make the best use of all those physiologic improvements. Hmm. Yeah. Amber, go ahead. You, you, you have something you want to share? No, I, d- I love this. I think this is super interesting. Um, one of the, the analogies I like to use when we talk about, you know, laying the foundation for something like this, for specializing for a specific event is it's like building a house. Like you have to install the plumbing and the electrical, right? And that stuff has to be ready in order to handle a higher capacity, which is the specificity for a specific performance that you're aiming for. And I think that's exactly what you're getting at here, Chad. Like mm-hmm. you need exactly. th- those physiological, physiological foundational um, characteristics. And then once you have the, the, the skeleton of the house with the plumbing and the electrical ready to go, then you can really start to load the system. Yeah. Yep. This is, uh, so talking about the, the training in this case, uh, Mr. Memes, I'll call him Mr. Memes, by the way. <laughs> um, but uh, talking about the training that you need to do, uh, so the the specific climb, and I did in, inquire further, is Mount Washington. Uh, so that's uh, East Coast uh, climb, very famous climb, and a really tough one. And mm-hmm. uh, just like you know, looking at basically like roughly what it would take me to get into that climb, it's definitely not a short endeavor. A- actually, Amber, have you ever climbed this since you're an East Coast athlete? I have not, but I know a lot of people who have, and it is it's a tough one. It is a tough one. Yeah. I think best case scenario, I would be like around an hour as it like just north of an hour. Like, uh, so we're talking a really long climb mm-hmm. in terms of, of pitch. It's actually surprisingly, it doesn't seem that variable. Um, and, and this is kind of sad because I think it averages 12%. So sorry, not a whole <laughs> lot of change <laughs> that you're going to come across. It's a hard climb. So this really does speak like steady power to me, Chad, like, like, uh, mm-hmm. no matter, you know, like just being an hour long. Even and, and that's like a, there are plenty of cyclists that are much much faster than me. But uh, for for uh, an average Joe that is looking at this climb, it's going to take a lot longer than an hour. So for something that long, you, you kind of can't get around needing to have steady power to some degree, right? I mean, absolutely. I mean, it, it would be a fun experiment, and I even tried to apply this to nationals one year to see if I could just rely on VO2 max work to increase FTP. And then and that part of it did pan out, but then could I apply that to steady state efforts? And it, it didn't work for me, but I do have to say, I, I didn't really put the necessary work forth. I wasn't fully behind it, but yeah. maybe just as a thought experiment or an actual experiment, it would be nice to see, can this work? I haven't seen evidence of it and I can't find science to back it up either or research to back it up. Before we get into like this, just the basic physics and this age old question that all of us have, <laughs> yeah, a of couple like, more points. you know, like, uh, yeah, a couple more points. And, and also Nate, I want to get it because you've shared basically like the plenty times about, cause you're, you're the fueling champ. I have the answer. <laughs> I'll wait till you guys go through all this and I'll, I'll tell <laughs> okay. Catherine what to do. No, the, I know when okay. it's, 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 it's good stuff. The one so. simple trick. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So yeah, I just want to make just a couple more quick points. One is that, um, the, on the physio, so all we talked there was physiological. So now let's talk the psychological preparation. You cannot underplay the importance of the familiarity with what you're going to experience. You have to understand that particular form of suffering. And if you haven't exposed yourself to it, you're going to be surprised by it. And I promise it's not going to work out for you. 
It's just yeah. not going to be this, oh my God, this is magic. I, I have these, I'm so good at two minute <laughs> efforts and I'm flying through this, what will amount to be a 50 or 60 minute ride. Mm. It, it won't be optimal. I promise. So yeah, this for, is like, oh, sorry, go ahead, Jen. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, hitting home on that uh, article that Jesse wrote on our blog, which is fantastic. And we talked about this even last week, but it's how to build a pacing plan for longer events. And he talks about where the basically like the intensity factor that you should shoot for given for a certain distance. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about something that's an hour or less, that's like very crucial because there's a lot of energy system exchange going on and a lot of it's like higher resolution. A lot of things are packed in, a lot of changes are happening. Yeah. But as it gets longer, that's why with something like even a 90 minute effort, a 90 minute a minute effort can be stretched out for hours, right? Because it's, you know, a similar energy system that you're using. So when you're talking about the 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 form of stress that you're going to encounter when you when you go up to this race, we're really talking about the things your body is doing to operate at that intensity mm -hmm. under those conditions. Yeah. And that's why we talk about that. It doesn't it, it doesn't imply that you need to go out and do a 10-hour ride for a 10-hour event because no. once again the energy systems you use for a short or a shorter amount of time stretch out over that. But it but, does it is yeah. helpful to to experience something that replicates the amount of psychological stress you're going to be under. So, so, I mean, you, you can ride at 90% of FTP. Maybe you're doing, maybe you can do an entire hour at 90% of FTP and you think this is manageable. I can do it. But what happens at 92, 94, 96, mm -hmm. what happens is that ticks up because it's an exponential increase in the, in the, in the elevation in RPE and just how much you're suffering, how hard it is to concentrate and commit to the remainder of the event. So you have to, you have to face your, you have to, you have to face this at some point and you have to do it before the event itself. Yeah, how you how you actually um, the sensations that you perceive from the work that you're doing are are so specific to the type of work that you're doing, how long you've been doing that work, and how you respond to that both mentally and physically are crucial. And you don't that to your point, Chad. That's not something that you want to surprise yourself with because I, I mean, you, it's something you have to train as well, right? Like you have to train how you respond to the the specific sensations that you're going to be expecting in yeah. the event you're training for. And that this familiarity alone sucks out. I mean, takes takes some of the sting out of it, right? Yeah. Right. This is why I'm doing the ramp test every day until Monday, <laughs> just to make sure. <laughs> like when I'm there, cramming for a ramp test. <laughs> yes. Nothing like specificity. Nothing like specificity. I like. Okay. It. So so now more more in response to Cat Three Memes uh, question. I, I I can't emphasize again the importance of not underplaying your stamina, which is your endurance at your specific power. And this is why you you could you, we start with workouts that are like four by fifteen, and you have five minute rest in between. And that's all good and fine. You've shown yourself that you can do sixty minutes at target power, but you're breaking it up with five minute breaks, which is highly unrealistic. You're not going to face that on race day. So we whittle those down, or I whittle those down over the course of the course of the weeks, so that now you're seeing four minute recoveries down to three minute recoveries. And I not I uh, some workouts do block it together, but the higher intensity ones. We'll never block it together any closer than 30 second recoveries. And I always feel that 30 second recoveries are relevant because even at, during a race, you'll find those. I mean, they might not last for 30 seconds. Maybe they'll just be a handful of seconds here and there, but you will get little breaks from the effort. It's not going to be this impossibly steady, steady rate the entire time. You will find opportunities for these little, and I put it in quotes, breaks because they're not really breaks uh, on, on course. Yeah, and then like finally micro recoveries. Yeah. Yeah. And they, and they carry a lot of weight, right? I mean, they pack a lot of oh, punch. Yeah. It can be just oh a gosh. couple of seconds. 
or it, it might not even be a total break. It might just be like a section of the course where you're not, you're just easing off the pressure, just like a fraction of yeah. a little bit less than you were in the previous 10 minutes. And that can feel, that can feel like a break or a total hugely recovery. rejuvenating. But, yeah. Yes. Yes. And then finally, um, again, specific to Catherine Mean's question, heat generation, and, and maybe the, the rest of you will touch on this, but when you do these steady state efforts, body temperature or core temperature just rises and then it sits, you know, if we're doing short shorts, it rises and then it falls, rises and then it falls. But when you do long steady state efforts, especially when they grow into the 15 and 20 and even 30 minute durations, heat comes up and it just stays there. So if you're not cooling well, it's just going to get more and more uncomfortable to the point of near impossibility by the end of those long efforts. That's a big one. Yeah. Yeah. It's it for sure. Right. Amber, like mm -hmm. in the middle of time trials and races, like if you don't have proper heat management going on in one regard or another, that can absolutely compromise your ability to, to hit at your potential. Oh, the it's VO2 tough. max. We feel it with indoor training mm -hmm. is like getting flogged. And then <laughs> 40 K TT is like a boa constrictor. And you're just like, mm. no, what is happening? It's just tighter. No. And then it just gets tighter and tighter and it keeps getting more and there's no relief. <laughs> and that's what you guys talk about. If you just get a 1% relief, then it's like, mm -hmm. oh, this is actually not so bad. But then it gets tighter and tighter and tighter. Mm -hmm. And then it keeps yeah. going again. Yeah. Yep. And I think different it's people could take different types of pain. Some people can take really intense pain for a minute, but then they get a minute off and they're like, sure, that's, that's fine. But they can't right. take the, uh, the really high pain. And then triathletes, it's just, you're uncomfortable all day long. Like the whole day you feel bad, but that can be trained though. I mean, you can yes. desensitize yourself to those particular types of discomfort. Yep. And you can do the same thing with, that's what, I mean, I think a lot of, uh, heat acclimation training, there's the physiological, physiological benefits and adaptations that go with that, but also just training your brain to know that this is not, you know, threat. this, it's yeah. not a threat. Exactly. Cat three memes is his real name. You can bleep that out, Tucker. Uh, <laughs> buying a uh, boa constrictor is probably good training. Just to train that. Uh, Not jo recommended. Jonathan, you had some side. more stuff written down. Yeah, yeah. And and one quick thing on that though, like so I I, I think of a lot of things with like in terms of like I, I separate them. I simplify things because I'm a simple man. Um, I need I need to think of things in two different ways. Uh, one is like, I always think of things in terms of being positional or directional. And what I mean by that is like the stress that you experience in a 40 K TT is like consistently directional. Like it's, it's like basically you're constant, it's constantly feeling like you can't escape and it's moving in one direction since you have no break. And, but it's funny because when we take those breaks, like you said, chat with short shorts, or even if you're just racing a criterium or, or any sort of effort where there's a little bit of a break that directional like the direction changes in terms of where your stress is trending. Right. Mm -hmm. And that can really be helpful psychologically speaking to us, but it's, but while that happens, the stress is also the, the position of the stress is moving in one direction or another. And if you end up pushing that too far, it just gets to the point where that the position of the stress is too much. Um, I almost always favor directional, uh, the condition rather than position, right? Like, uh, you hear this in racing a lot of the time too. People always talk about like racing in a series that they'd rather have momentum than they would points, right? Because they can build on that momentum and continue. And there's other factors that help with that. And the same thing, a lot of the time with, with training, I recognize the tendency to think, well, I don't know. I'm not really good at this steady stuff. So maybe I'll just punch. And if I punch, <laughs> but I equal out at the same average power, it might be better. And that was kind of like the question that I, that I wanted to address, even from like a physics standpoint. 
because there are kind of like two schools of thought. There's like this uh, this school of thought where it's basically like, well, and actually let's let's just talk about basic physics, like first things first, like kinetic versus potential energy, right? And basically, you know, your potential energy is something that's basically stored in an object at a specific position. And your potential energy is fixed from wherever you're at to wherever you need to be. Like think of like a climb and you're going or a descent. If you're at the top of that descent and you're a bowling ball, that speed that you're going to build up toward the bottom, that's what we're talking about there. But your kinetic energy is something that's like stored in the object as motion, like you're you're moving up and all that motion or all that energy that you've built uh, through motion is what you have for, for kinetic energy. So this is like the classic thing, right, Amber, where it's like, well, is it better to just, you know, focus on steady state power and as a result kind of ignore this next little thing, which is the other side, people say, well, I'd like to just surge at the proper times and build and kind of hunt for speed. And if I do that, then what I might be doing is 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 reaching the top of some little rest or change in pitch with higher kinetic energy. And then thusly, that may make it so that even at the same average power, I could reach the end at a faster time. But the funny thing is, without a lot of variations, uh, no matter what, however you get to 300 watts, if that's your average from the top of the climb or not, whether it's variable or paced, if it's a consistent pitch, you're going to get there at the same time if it's 300 watts. But it's these variations where it changes. And you've talked about that in, in kind of like with pro racing and everything else and how you've done it. You kind of like search for speed, right? Is yeah. that kind of like your approach? Yeah. So it... it- you can kind of just, as, as a general contextual framework, think about time trialing as the art of creating and maintaining speed. So that's as much about creating speed as it is avoiding the loss of speed that you've already created, right? So that comes into momentum. So conserving your momentum through a turnaround or taking advantage of the momentum that you have at the bottom of a hill to carry it up the, the next hill. Um, and that, you know, there's a limit on that, right? Because we also have to think about the physiological side of it. So if you're punching and recovering and you're not able to recover enough because you're you're doing exactly what we've just been talking about, where you're punching at a really high power output and then backing off and punching up again and backing off and you're gassing yourself as a result of that, maybe that's not the best thing to do. So, you know, this is this is all, you know, take it with a grain of salt, but it is kind of one way of conceptualizing the art of time trialing. And, you know, as with any art, you can't just jump in and be a Picasso, right? Like even Picasso, even the best artists in the world studied the basics and the tools of the trade until they got to a point of mastery where they were able to, you know, express it more as an art. So it, we, you have to build the systems, you have to create those adaptations, you have to get the physiological systems on board and ready to do this. And you have to understand how it works too. Like, um, as much as, looking at a course, you're, you're looking for ways to kind of create that speed and, and create the fastest time on that course and get the most out of your body. Uh, getting the most out of your body is an important point with that. And that's probably going to have more to do with creating a governor. So you don't go too hard. (laughs) Right. And then, so you're finding that balance between creating and maintaining speed on course, but also getting the most out of your body over given distance. And it's, it's, it's a lot it's a lot to accomplish in one event. It's, it takes a lot of training of a lot of different things, the the physiologic systems, as well as the mental, um, and perceptual systems as well. Yeah. And there's so much nuance in it. Like for what you're saying there is it's like, it's learning to execute well because the constraints are there. Like, Mm -hmm. especially if like you're doing like a 40 KTT or anything where it's like a truly capacitive effort, 
where you're like, you're, you need to finish at that finish line with nothing left. Yeah. When you're talking about that, you like really don't have a whole lot of variance in terms of headroom going above, because once again, once you cross that threshold, there are consequences that will then make it harder for you to maintain that same intended average power for the rest of the race. Right. You could Um, gas yourself in the first 30 seconds and say, well, I left it all out on course, but you won't have gone very fast (laughs) (laughs) over, you know, over the course. So it's, it's a balance of both sides of the coin. And any of us know this is, is our intensity or sorry, is our variability index, which the VI is a number that basically the difference between your normalized and average power as that basically increases. In other words, as you surge harder, uh, it gets a lot tougher to maintain the same average power, right? Your, your normalized power will be ticking up or holding steady, but your average power tends to drop because, you know, basically you're only capable of doing a certain amount of work. And if you do that by spiking really high, you know, like getting a high variability index, it's really tough to be able to maintain that because of the cost of those hard efforts. So it's, it's like, to your point, like Amber, like you really have to, like, it's an art that's to be refined with practice going through the whole thing. And something interesting with this is like, if you look at a lot of like pacing algorithms, like best bike split and stuff like that, they hardly ever say, okay, just stick at it. 200 watts if that's your FTP for this hour long effort. You know, it, right. there are subtle variations that are that are going on throughout the the course of the climb. <clears throat> so there's absolutely like something to this. Now where this can change for sure is if you're talking about like a long course triathlete, right? And these long course triathletes probably aren't working at their capacitive effort all the way to the end of the climb, but they've imposed a ceiling so to speak that they'll need to adhere to for the rest of of the the race and then they can run. So it's really interesting that age old question of, is it faster to gun it going up and then coast for longer on the descent? It's, it's a tricky one to answer. Really. It's, it's not, it's not quite as straightforward as that. The one thing to, oh, it's Nate, easy. you got something. Yeah. I, no, no, I was going to answer it, but go ahead. Nate uh, has the answer guys. Okay, he has yeah. the so, answer. So you, you have the answer to, to Mr. Memes issue, right? Is what you, what you want to get to in the notes here? Yeah. The, every, everything. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I thought you were done. So I thought you were but, done. But, no, I'm not. I'm not. One thing to keep in mind with this, though, is acceleration, because there is an ex- a cost to acceleration. So let's say that you're uh, basically going from point A to point B, and you have a variable pacing plan in place. But that variable pacing plan, let's just think in terms of extremes, it has like pretty severe accelerations, and you just like you're oscillating over and over. Every time you accelerate and put like acceleration into your bike like that, loss increases, like loss of efficiency basically increases into some degree, like through your drivetrain, through flex in the chassis, everything else like that. So while it's probably not anything that it would be really hard to measure, first of all, but while it's probably not something that is going to be substantial, you know, a fraction of a percent, uh, Chad, you lost podium on nationals by like a couple seconds. Was that right? A fraction, not a couple. Yeah. So, so sorry to bring it up again, but like to that point, we're talking, that's like a fraction of a percent on a 40 KTT. Yeah. That's not even a, we're not talking a percentage point. That's like a small thing. So, uh, to keep in mind that acceleration in itself is, is less efficient than holding at a steady state, right? Because once you're at that steady state and if you're not, you know, increasing power and then increasing loss in order to basically hit the same average, there, that is real and that is there for sure. But it's also probably, uh, you know, assuming it's in this extreme oscillation pattern. Yeah, that would be definitely profound. But when we're talking about minimal accelerations, and if you're trying to do it without being too hard and sudden in your accelerations, you're probably doing a really good job of minimizing effects like that. But it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Now, 
taking all of that away, and I'm going to recap this and, and, and try to recap this and lead in for Nate to hit this out of the park. So Nate, this is your tall tee on a golf course. Um, but basically, uh, you have to consider a few things. Number one, are you going to be operating at the, at your physiological limit with an hour long hill climb for Mr. Memes here? Yes, that's going to be, he's going to be tapped out, right? So in that case, you have to think about the fact that, well, I am going to be doing steady state work, so I should probably train for that steady state work. This climb isn't going to give me a lot of chances to take a break. So it would be in my best interest to familiar, familiarize myself with my efforts. But if you're not Mr. Memes and you're just thinking about this, the way you have trained and the way you are conditioned will absolutely play into the best way for you to execute to a certain degree, right? Um, so you can't just think like, well, I'm a short power rider. I'm going to show up at a steady state climb and I'm just going to ride steady state and everything will be fine. If you're not used to those sort of efforts, it's going to be tough. So it's worth you definitely, if you're building out a pacing plan, how you trained and how you're conditioned absolutely is something you should consider. Then in terms of physics behind it, there are some certain rules that you can keep in mind. And as you get better, you can like really kind of get good with basically inserting just enough effort at the right spots so that you can get some extra speed like that and, and maintain that speed. But the main thing is a lot of people have a hard time with steady state work. We see this all the time. Like it's phys it's psychologically hard. It's physically hard. And uh, Nate, this is your tall T. What would nope. advice would you give? For oh, okay. <laughs> I got a lot <laughs> more to mind. say than that. Okay. So first <laughs> okay. 40, 42 yeah. second. Uh, I think we've seen this, like, I don't know, anyone who thinks that being what's, uh, variable on a course. So it takes a certain amount of kilojoules to do like a hill climb. Right. And the only time where you're going to be more efficient is if, uh, there is enough aero drag that you don't like, cause that's exponential that you want to be a little, put out a little bit less power. You want to put out more power during the like really steep parts. But if you're going slow the whole time, if you're going eight miles per hour, the whole climb, like a constant power output is probably going to make you as fast as possible up that. And we've seen over the years, imagine old like world tour racing. Um, and I guess postal service and sky has done this, but they would like attack each other. Like they'd be on a climb and it'd be kind of like sweet spot and they like attack each other. And it was so fun to watch. And then sky has been really good at this and Enios now. But they, they ride at a, like, they know, hey, we got to make up this climb the fastest. It's okay if someone goes in front of us. We'll just catch them again in a little bit. So when they have this, this attack over and over again, they stay at that, like, boa constrictor pace where everyone's tired. And the people that are surging, there's a more physiological cost, even though they are... Uh, even though they're, they're with them, like, at the same time, they actually had to... It, it hurt them more and then they start getting dropped out. Like how often do you see that, right? Where somebody tries to attack sky and they're like, I don't care. And then they get dropped like three minutes later. The only time we get an exciting stage is when it's slow enough where there is a draft available and that their domestiques are, um, letting the second and third rider, uh, have a little bit less power. And then it goes up higher. And I'd say those attacks too, they're usually a little surge. And then like, and this is a mental break where it happens all the time. In the tour, when people get like, when they get bucked off, even if there's no arrow drag, they suddenly lose a hundred yards when they lose five feet. And then they lose a hundred yards because they get like the rubber band breaks and there's actually no rubber band. Um, it's just like, <laughs> really? Yeah. But people, they just think like, oh, this person is they like give up mentally. Right. Um, the other thing you think about, think about this in running and this is flat courses happen all the time. Can you imagine if Kipchoge or like other marathon runners would run like a, like 400 
at like a sub four minute mile pace and then it would slow down and then accelerate and then slow down. And that would be the best way. Like that's ridiculous to you, right? But cyclists go, oh, but I'm good at short effort. So I should do this. That it just makes no sense. Um, with them, like virtually all world records are set with a negative split. It's very even. And it's like a, a, a 49% for the first one and then 51 afterwards or the other way for time. Um, and that, that just makes perfect sense, right? You, you don't want to start run walking a, a race, but for some reason, cyclists think that maybe I should be more sporadic. And if there is drafting involved, yes, that does help a lot because then you, you make other people behind you have to put on more kilojoules for the same distance because they don't have as much, uh, they don't, they're not as efficient. Lastly, yeah. this is what you wanted to cue me up for is about like this, like hundreds of people I've heard say this, that they thought they were fueling well for their threshold efforts. And then they started fueling well, and now they're suddenly not hard. Uh, there is a forum post right now on Fort Trainer Road called I Heart Carbs by Captain Donut Man. And by the way, donuts are not a high carb, like they're high carb, high fat. They're not what you should, should. be eating. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So inside of this, there are 56 people like posts about people like having the exact same experience and VO two max, you can get by without fueling very much and it's easy or just doing like a scratch bottle and other people will say uh, like, Oh, I thought it was fine. And then they upped it to like hundred grams and the RP just went down. And then also the recoverability is, is huge. That's the biggest thing I've noticed too, is that like your legs don't hurt as much the next day and it's better. I would say cat three, Mr. Cat, um, Mr. Meme, sorry. Uh, <laughs> whoa, too familiar for a second. Uh, like I would try this once and it's not a big deal. Night before, eat a complex carbohydrate meal with vegetables. In the morning, eat 100 grams of uh, carbohydrate three to four hours before your ride. Right before the 20 minutes before the ride, do a gel and then try to do 100 grams per hour during that ride. Just do that once in a threshold ride and see like you tell me that your body does not feel better. I'd be very surprised in a threshold effort. Yeah. If you want to flirt with overfueling a workout, sweet spot, threshold, over-unders, those are all excellent opportunities to do it. I would say yeah. popular pop properly fueling rather than overfueling. Right. Yeah. But and if you're, you if you're trying to figure out where your limit is, this is a good, good time to apply. Oh yeah. 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 Cause there is yeah. a limit. And that's a good thing to know <laughs> yeah. in terms of your performance on the day, right? Because that's the kind of effort you're going to need to fuel on race day and knowing exactly what you can handle, what's going to be optimal for you is going to be probably as important as your pacing strategy. Oh yeah, for sure. Right. Like it, like the, those two things, if you ask triathletes, those are the most important things, right? Yeah. Right. It's like their yeah. pacing strategy and their fueling. Right. Am Amber, can you imagine a swimmer saying like, okay, I'm doing a 500, but the first 100 is going to be sub one minute and the next is going to be 120, And then I'm going to do a sub one minute. Like that, that doesn't really make sense in swimming because it's even more exponential for the fluid dynamics, but right. it just like, we don't in other sports, you don't even think about doing variable pacing. You're like, of course I would do sustained pacing on a long um, if, if the resistance is that I'm finding is the same, if it goes up to 10% and then it goes to 2% grade, that's going to change it. Like your pacing for, uh, for optimal speed, but Chad said in that first study, uh, but if it's eight to 9% the whole time, it's going to be very, very small fluctuations. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like you said, that's in like Team Ineos right there is just like salivating when they see a consistent climb. They're yeah, like, right. Yes, please. Yeah. Like we'll let people attack and then we are just going to stay the same all the way up. So, well, what's interesting uh, about that, I think, and I'll, I'll just, when I used to race with Amber Neven, so she's 
former world champion, time trial specialist, but also a phenomenal climber. And I remember we, we raced the tour of El Salvador one year and we had, there were lots of just crazy long climbs of volcanoes. It was really fascinating to me because I think one of the big tactical components of a bike race, not a time trial, but any mass start race is you can play these mental games with people. So you can go on the attack, draw somebody out of their steady state zone and, and kill them basically like, you know, break them mentally to the point where to your point, Nate, they lose five meters. And then the next thing, you know, they're out the back completely and you can't even see them anymore. Um, but what Neben was really, really good at, I think because she was a time trialist was she knew exactly what she needed to do to get up the mountain the fastest. So people would be attacking left and right. And she just would not respond to it because she knew exactly what she needed to do to get the most out of her body over that given distance. And it was really, really impressive. But I think that that's part of the reason that bike racers in general tend to think, you know, they like to think about this variable strategy because in a mass start race, there's always that opportunity to sort of like fake out your, your competitors or, or use an attack or a surge as a tactical tool, uh, that's not necessarily founded in, you know, a physiologic rationale. I, I did a very scientific test with this once, <laughs> extremely scientific, uh, with a friend of mine, Ben. He started in front of me in a time trial, and he was surging the whole time, and I was steady. And it was really fun to watch going up the whole time. Like, uh, it, was, it, was, it was interesting, right? Um, and, 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 of course, that's not scientific at all, by the way. Uh, there was nothing controlled whatsoever. But... Yeah, it's it's definitely I favor the steady approach for sure. I've and I'm if anything, uh, you can probably attest to this, Nate and Chad. I'm 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 more of a variable rider in terms of like what my natural strengths are, but I still when I'm on any sort of time trial like that, I know that steady is faster. Even I'd though say, I ignore that many times when I start, I go out too hard. This is another point of that. I think that might be in your head, John, because you you've always said that, so you always train that way, so you're always good at that. Yep. And then mm -hmm. you started fueling more and you were, you, you're really good at long efforts too. Uh, mm -hmm. I would yeah. like to see you do like a 40 K TT plan someday. And mm -hmm. do, maybe when we do, uh, do triathlon, you'll get that when we do some Olympics and you fuel like, cause before you weren't, I think you have changed your fueling. You've noticed a difference yourself. Oh yeah. I, I think I, I, my thought is anybody can be good at long efforts if they fuel well enough. Like I, I seriously feel like, and, and put in the right training for it. Right. Like if you do those two things, I feel like anybody can be there. I do feel like I have like a natural facility and who knows if that's just because it's been in my head. It's a great point, Nate, toward the shorter stuff. But regardless, I feel like anybody can be good at the longer stuff. If you fuel well and you train it, it's yeah. just, it works in general, probably everyone who's listening to this, none of us have hit our genetic potential. So we're like, we have room to improve in whatever we want to do. Uh, and we'll probably, will never hit our genetic potential, but we probably maybe get to, I'm just going to throw this out like 80% in anything. So we can really probably be good in just about anything we want to do if we train that way. Um, but so often people train one way, like a triathlete says, I can't sprint like, well, how many times a week do you sprint? Well, I haven't sprinted for five years. Like, of course, like yeah. you're not good at sprinting. And I bet you, if you did right. a sprint plan for imagine then if you did five years of practicing sprinting, I bet you would be an amazing, amazing sprinter. And good is all relative too, because we're not racing against the world's best. So it's relative to you, right? Yep. Like mm -hmm. we all have room to improve. So let's go into Trey's question. He says, I fell in love with riding back in August when I started a life change weight loss goal. I had gotten up to 275 pounds and now I'm all the way down to 210. Way to go. That's wow. awesome. Good job, Trey. He says, I've watched my diet and ridden a lot and I feel my legs and fitness are getting better and better. 
I had a goal of riding my first Grand Fondo in June, but looks like that won't happen now with the current conditions of the world. So I just got a set of Asioma pedals. Those are the Favero Asioma pedals. They actually have really good reviews too. Uh, a lot of people ask like, which power meter pedal uh, can I get? It seems like they're getting pretty figured out. The Garmin Vectors are are solid, good reviews. The Favero Asiomas are others too. So it says it just got those Asiomas. Uh, sorry, are you going to say something? I uh, John, I just have to say 124 kilograms down to 95 kilograms. Whew. Thank you, Nate. Awesome. Not, uh, fast on the, on the conversion there. So... Uh, so he says, uh, I got those Asioma pedals and they give me power when I ride. I love this as much as I'm, or I love this as I'm much more capable of riding within myself, or at least can see how much I'm reaching. I like considering my wattage. Uh, he says in addition to, or rather, uh, rather than just speed, which is all he had before, uh, for sure. That makes such a huge difference, right? When you're especially a beginner rider and suddenly you have that. I remember thinking like when I first started, which we're going to get into this in a bit, but I remember thinking when I first started, everyone always talked about speed with like, uh, I rode with like an old, like an older group of gentlemen. They were like, great speed today, averaged 18. And like, I remember thinking like, I can't hold 18 up this climb. Like, you know, I was just like so naive. I, you know, and then once you see power, you realize how hard it is to do those things. So it can be really illuminating. Okay. Uh, he says my longest ride to date is 63 miles. I just completed a 50 mile route where I averaged 185 Watts with a weighted average of nearly 200 Watts. That's good. A couple of questions. Yeah. Solid. Right. Uh, so a couple of questions, how much under your FTP is considered a good endurance number for me to ride during long periods of time. And he says, what will I need for a full 100? So, uh, kind of like a, a, a basic, uh, question that he has on pacing right there. And really it kind of comes down to time, right? Uh, it's not just the distance that you've done, but also the time, uh, that would be like the key thing, uh, on, on this for sure. Uh, Nate or Amber, what would you kind of like ballpark for on something like this? What, what would you like, or how do you pace things, uh, for something like a longer event like this? Uh, I'll go first. If it's a group ride, if you're not by yourself, then totally I'm going to be in groups, I'm probably going to put out way more effort on the hills to stay with the group. And I'll be looking for people that on the climbs, like I can kind of stay with them. And then if we're in a group effort, that makes it a lot easier. And that'll be a faster overall time. If I'm by myself, Ironman would be different than my road bike, but road bike, I'd probably around be around 0.75, 0 0.7 to 0.75 IF somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. That would be probably pretty, uh, pretty, that would be hard though. 0.75 of it. Yeah. It's a friendly, it's a friendly spot to put yourself though, for something like this, relatively speaking. Um, yeah. once again, Jesse's post about how to build a pacing plan for long events. He talks about like this very thing in there and has like, you know, some, some specifics that, that he recommends or that we've seen basically from some data. Amber, what about and, you? And if, yeah. Oh. How have you, how would you do it? Because you've helped so many people, like you've gone to these like camps and, and done a lot of this stuff and ridden with a lot of people that are probably in a similar scenario, I would assume. Oh yeah. I actually, I would echo a lot of almost everything that Nate said. So, um, the first thing I would do is try to find a group that's going a pace that feels good to me and, um, stick with them because you have the benefit of the draft, the social components really awesome. Um, and then if you find yourself in a group that's going too fast for you, you can always drop back to the, to a group behind you until you find a group that feels like they're, they're at an effort level that feels appropriate for you. And then if you're by yourself, yeah, I think, what was it? 0.7 IF you were saying, I think that's about right. Uh, which is kind of hard like unless you've really trained that sort of rate of perceived exertion, that might be a hard thing, but I mean, you kind of have a good idea of what feels sustainable. So I would, you know, if I, most of these events are, there are other people around you. So you're, 
prob it's probably unlikely that you'll be alone for very long. Someone will catch up to you or you'll pass somebody. And, um, so yeah, during the times where you are alone, just find a pace that feels sustainable. Have you guys ever done a longer race where then you get in no man's land or no woman's land, no athlete's land, and you're riding by yourself for like an hour and then a group catches you and they're going a little bit faster than you. And you're like, I could have waited and been with them and like saved <laughs> yes. so much, so, yes. so much, uh, like all the time, right? Yes. Cause you never, you look behind and, you're, and you don't see a group and you don't know if it's so, cause some of the longer races, even if there are 2000 people. Like it gets pretty few and far between when you're six, seven hours. Like Leadville was an example. There wasn't a group coming, but anyway, that's a, yeah, yeah for sure. That that's happened. I, I think to all of us listening to this where we yeah. think that we're alone and we think we're the last rider on course, or at least we ride like it. Right. And we're, we're definitely not. Yeah. And one thing in this, yeah, go ahead. Dan, I was sorry. just going to say, chances are you're not the last rider on course. And I honestly, I can't think of anybody who would regret setting up and waiting for a group and then riding with a group. I mean, it's, it's just, you really can't go wrong with that move. Honestly. I think too, at like, especially if it's windy, if you can, if you like, I'm thinking about dirty Kansas where you might have five hours left. I, I think if you wait for one person and then you can have two people working together, you can both go so much more fast or so much faster. And if it's a really long event, you can stop and like refuel, rehydrate, right? Especially if you do it at an aid station, just wait for somebody else to come. Mm-hmm. I doubt you're waiting 30 minutes. I bet you're waiting three minutes. Yeah. I realized that we were using IF and intensity factor without describing really what it is. Uh, so yeah. people may like have a question about what that is. Uh, Nate, do you want to, I guess, throw out what, what your definition would be for, for intensity factor? It's just percent of FTP. So 0.75 would be 75% of your FTP. Yeah. So it's, uh, since Trey has a power meter, it's pretty easy to figure out what that number would be. And that's kind of like a, a good, like at that 0.7 to 0.75, however you want to do that, that would be a good ballpark to think like, okay, well, if I am on my own, this sort of pace is probably okay. If you're truly on your own, uh, but chances are you can ride with somebody else and do even lower than that and probably get a faster time. Speaking of this, this is like all of us probably, oh, I mean, we all definitely did. We had that time when we went out and rode 100 miles for the first time and minor my experience is pretty embarrassing, but I figured we should all <laughs> share what we did uh, going through that experience for like all of us. Uh, Chad, do you remember the first time you rode something like a century or a hundred miles? Yeah, and, the closest. And what was it like? We were training. It was I can't even remember nineteen ninety something, and we were doing the MS one fifty, which is one hundred fifty miles, but it's broken over two days, and the, so that means basically seventy five miles per day. And the longest ride we had done was uh, to Carson City, Reno, and back. So I think it came out to be a 60-mile day, which was a big deal. And and it was it it actually set us up really nicely. It showed us that just a small decrement in what we thought we could do, just a, just enough of a drop in pace to make it slightly less uncomfortable, maybe even bordering uncomfortable, made the two 75-mile days that came later actually very doable. Yeah, that's not 100 miles. <laughs> no, I know. No, you're, you're absolutely right. But I do think that both of those we could have dragged out from 75 to 100 miles. It, it wouldn't have been pleasant, but we certainly could have done it physically. I was terrible on my first one. I, like <laughs> it was a really hard ride. It's called the death ride, and it was like 115 miles of the tunnel. It's a little different climbing. <laughs> oh yeah, but it was. <laughs> it was like my yeah, it was like 15,000 feet. But it was like my it was the it was my first 100 miles. Very poor choice. I could have done many other options for that. And oh, it was terrible. I was eating like 
First of all, I wasn't eating, and then suddenly I was like, I think I'm nearly on death's door, so I need to eat. So then I just grabbed like a bunch of like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and like pretzels and stuff, and then felt like death. At one point, I just like fell over uh, on the last climb. Like <laughs> I was an absolute mess. So like anybody listening to this that thinks that people like breeze into things, I definitely wasn't there. Yeah. Uh, I did not breeze into it. That's at all. Forty five hundred meters the death ride for climbing over 150 miles. And what's, I don't know, I'm sure what that is, but you guys can do yeah, that math in your head. A lot. It was too much for me. That, mm-hmm. That's the, that's the, that's what it was then. I did it. Amber, on, did you go ahead? Go ahead. Yeah. Amber. Nate, go ahead. Okay. Yeah, Amber first, then Nate. Oh, um, I don't remember the first time that I did a hundred miles, but I will say that. So one of the things that uh, we used to do when I was racing professionally was at the end of the season, we'd go and do some of the, like the fun fall fondos and a lot, those would often be somewhere around a hundred miles. Um, and they're super, super fun, but it was hilarious because we'd be at the end of the season. So we'd have almost peak fitness, right? And we'd go and we would do these fondos for fun and they would destroy us seriously. But it, it was, we were getting destroyed, not because we were doing the, we were, we were pushing the pace per se, but it was just because we were stopping at all the aid stations. Cause a lot of these fondos have really, really good food at the aid stations. So we're like eating fluffernutters, hanging out, having a couple Cokes and we're standing around for 15, 20 minutes. Cause it's, you know, there's beautiful scenery and you chatting with people and having a good time. And then you get back on the bike again. The next thing you know, by the end of the day, you're just a walking shell of a human being. Um, if you can walk actually. So <laughs> one of the things I found with these actually is to be really mindful of how frequently you're stopping and for how long. So trying to minimize, um, the number of stops and minimizing the length of time that you're stopping. That said, you still want to be fueling really well. And one of the things that's really easy to do on a long ride like that is to lull yourself into this complacent sense of like, I feel fine. I feel fine. I feel fine until suddenly you don't feel fine. So you want to be making sure that you're fueling and hydrating early and often before you think that you need it. Um, and that could be really easy to forget to do. So even setting like a little alarm reminder, either on your phone or your cycling computer every 30 minutes so that you're taking something in every 30 minutes on a really consistent basis, because when you need it, it's going to be too late if you haven't already been taking that in consistently. So, um, yeah, I would just, I would throw that out there as well. And then to what we were discussing earlier about finding a good group, you, you know, if you get in a group where it's going too hard, don't worry about pulling the plug on that group and dropping back to find another group. Um, Janelle Spilker has this really great, I don't have all of them right here, but she has this whole list that she calls phrases for friends, which are all of the socially acceptable ways that you can tell people that you don't want to ride with them because they're going too fast for you. <laughs> but one of them I just, that I do remember is just, this is a bit rich for my blood. I'm going to drop back a little bit. There's nothing <laughs> wrong with that. And if you do find yourself kind of going far harder than you want to, um, back it off and take, take some recovery time because this is, you know, hundred miles is a really long time. So if you go a little too hard on one climb, you got plenty of time to just back it off, take in some food, hydrate and recover from that before you kind of bring it back up to a steady state pace again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's super important. Don't try to ride with fast people at the beginning. If it feels <laughs> hard at the beginning, that's bad. <laughs> that's bad. That's, For sure. It's going to be a bad time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nate, how about you? I was training for an Ironman, so I did it on a TT bike, and I rode to up from South Reno to Red Rock in California and back, and it was horrible. It was really bad. <laughs> um, I, everything hurt, and I said, I, no way am I going to be able to run a marathon after this. 
And you know what? I didn't. I walked a marathon. So I <laughs> <laughs> was exactly right. Good plot twist there. <laughs> do you think do you think you could have done anything different to make it less horrible? <sighs> like tons. I think I was eating <laughs> like a gel an hour. Uh you know, eating McDonald's three times a day, like just everything bad. I was 27 or 28 and it was, I, I did nothing optimal at all. So yeah, everything could be better. And I got gator skins on. Uh, it was really bad. <laughs> hey, did you get any flats though? No flats. <laughs> there we go. Gator skins right there. So, um, so his second part of his question, is there a plan I should consider in trainer road that will help me reach these goals? I'm currently not, uh, I'm not currently a member, but con- am considering, uh, so what, well, what yes, there is. Would, yeah, yeah, indeed. <laughs> Since you asked, right? We, we should probably get into like, uh, you know, the, kind of the reasoning behind it though, yeah. right, Chad? Yeah, yeah. Uh, behind this much to elaborate on. Um, cool. th- there are really two plans and we often get the question in these very instances, which better suits what I'm after. Um, there's a century plan, which kind of states it outright. That's that's pretty, pretty straightforward. And then the 40K TT plan, people ask, you know, why can't I apply that to this? You absolutely can. With the century plan, it's kind of, it's toned down, or at least the emphasis has shifted a little bit. And it's it, it's still about improving your sustainable power, but I see the goal more as I wanna ride strongly and I wanna finish strongly. Whereas with the, the 40K TT, you wanna improve your sustainable power, but the goal shifts more towards riding competitively. So I wanna ride to the fullest extent of my potential at the time. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, that's that's kind of the, the main difference point. Yeah, Nate, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, uh, what is it, Trey? Trey, when you join, you just put in your race date and say it's a Fondo, and then it will do it, it will build it all for you. <clears throat> and I, I think for where you're at, I think the century plan would be great. Um, it's got that sustained, some over-unders, so on the climbs, you're probably gonna be less likely to get dropped, but you still have that longer endurance stuff to keep with the group all day long. Yeah. And now that you're training with power, I mean, if you, you've got an FTP, right? So if you were to look at, and, and I'm, I'm veering optimistically here, I recognize that this is, a, this is an ambitious pacing pattern. But if you were to take your existing FTP and simply reduce your power, I would look for something in the 15 to 25% range. And I know we're talking about a 0.7 IF, which would be a 30% reduction, but because it's a Fondo and you're probably going to have breaks and you're probably going to have groups, I would aim just a little bit higher. Um, it's ambitious and this being your first one, maybe not the most cautious approach. So, you know, take it with grain of salt, but you know, in the case that say you have a 250 watt threshold, you're looking at riding between 210, 200 Watts. And anyone who has a 250 watt threshold, think of that. I mean, riding at 200 Watts is a very sustainable amount of power for a long duration. This is uncharted waters. I recognize that, but go out and do some of your longer rides and take a peek at your wattage. And I'd be willing to bet. I mean, you made it happen for 50 miles. I'd be willing to bet you can, you can extend that. And in the really case of two, like the ceiling, it's like the ceiling, right? Like, like you're saying, Chad, like this is like a yeah. thing to reach, to reach for, right? Yeah. Really? Yeah. And you don't want to spend hardly any time above that. It's, it's going to be very costly over the course of a day <laughs> that long. I promise, especially with effect, you know, dismounts, remounts to, to use a, cro- a cycle cross term. <laughs> if you, uh, if you, the higher you go to threshold or over, the more glycogen you're going to use too. And it's just hard to replace all that when you're operating costly. at that very, yeah, that low percentage, you're burning more fat. You can go a lot, lot, lot longer. So that's where Chad mentions, like you do those spikes, they start to really wear on you. Um, To that 200, like, so Kona qualifiers, I know, uh, Trey, you're a little bit bigger than some of them, but they're doing uh, 200, 210. I think we even heard 190 for an Ironman to qualify for Kona. So like, kudos to you. That's that's, that's legit 200 watts for Mm -hmm. uh, 50 miles. And if you can't extend that, like Chad said, with some training, that's even more legit. 
Super. Yeah, and, and when we talk about extending it, you're trying to drag your, your normalized power, average power, and in a situation like this, you want those to closely match. You don't want big variability in what you're doing. To, to drag that up to your 100 mile normalized average power, this is about increasing stamina, what we talked about earlier. You have a particular power, you're just trying to make that power last longer. And that again is kind of what the century plan aims at. But if you actually wanna tow that FTP up a bit and then work at maybe even a lower percentage of a higher FTP or that same percentage of a higher FTP and go faster, then that's when the, the 40K TT plan is probably a better fit. And mm -hmm. the last thing I wanna say is uh, you don't have to go long to train for long. Um, it's not a bad idea. Like. It, could even be better, but there there's like sustained sweet spot workouts inside of uh, century plan. And I showed it on Leadville. Like I didn't do any long rides. I still went sub nine hours, like better than I ever have before too, which is, you always got to say we're looking for that person. How well did they do? Um, not saying I couldn't have gone faster if I did some maybe five hour rides outside, but I just didn't have the time desire or recoverability to do those. Um, so for me, it probably was faster for me to do it this way. It's also worth mentioning that chances are over the course of that century, you're going to have quite a few, I mean, Amber, like you mentioned the full on stops and man, it's so tempting to spend too much time at mm. those aid stations. Uh, Ooh, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> but then the, the other side of things is you're going to get a lot of coasting moments as well within that. So <clears throat> if you've done something that has you doing like, you know, two by 30 at sweet spot, which if you do the century plan, you absolutely will do, uh, throughout the course of that plan, you'll get familiarized with 15, 20, 30 minute intervals like that you're going to be really well prepared, relatively speaking to a lot of folks, because you will be used to constantly pedaling at that sort of duration for 20 to 30 minutes. And in that race, I guarantee you that's probably not going to occur or the grand fondo. It's probably not. You're going to have coasting moments in between then. So you'll be like, Hey, this is, this is easy. This isn't too bad at all. Of all the things on the trainer. I think my favorite is that you never have to stop pedaling hmm. because there's just, there's so much benefit, uh, physiologically to, to having to be able to like for two hours, not stopping once and doing these intervals that I feel like I can never ever replicate on the road. Yeah. And for extreme courses like Leadville, something like that, where Columbine's two hours, you know, that's, that's something for, for some folks, it's pretty rare that you get anything where you pedal consistently for two hours, yeah. unless you're on the trainer. But when you yeah. go out and to your point, when you go out and race and you have these little micro rests, it's like, wow, this is so much easier. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, it really is. So then it just becomes going back to the same thing Chad said, then it comes down to making sure that you don't break that ceiling because you might feel really good. Like you can do it, but trust in the numbers that by the end of the day, that's where you'll want to be. It's a long day race for it. And, and then kind of on the same, same note <clears throat> in terms of bracing for it, um, do consider the fact that you're going to encounter a type of fatigue that you maybe haven't experienced before. This isn't to say you have to go ride hundred miles to experience this level of fatigue, but at 50 miles, you probably recognized it was setting in. So it's only going to escalate from there, but it, at no point is going to become unmanageable. I assure you, it just, it just gets a little more, goes from niggling to nagging and, and becomes a little more prevalent. And when, what I'm talking about is obviously the working muscles. And I hesitate to use that term because all of your muscles are doing some level of work. So let's say the driving muscles, the legs that are actually turning the pedals. In addition to that, you're going to have tired postural muscles. And I mean, that, that goes everywhere. Obviously we're talking 
like low back and upper back and spine and neck, those will be, I mean, at the, at the forefront or at the front of the, the line for sure, but also your feet, your hands and your undercarriage, all those contact points, they're gonna get a little more and more uncomfortable. But if you know that going in and don't let it come as a surprise, you can actually brace yourself for it so that it's not, it's not as big of a deal as it might've been if you hadn't considered the fact that this will at some point affect me. And strength training is the best way to go about, especially those postural ones. It's absolutely, in my experience, at least the best way to go about managing that. It isn't just to ride long all the time. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's like a person that wants to get strong, just like, okay, go out and find heavy rocks and move them around. Right. Like, no, (laughs) like we follow a structured training approaches for this and, and strength training helps a ton for that. Chad, what one exercise would you recommend for strengthening your body for long rides? Uh, Body weight. You could just do planks. But if it's strength training where you have access to a barbell or even dumbbells or just something heavy, deadlifts. Uh Push-ups work quite well too. Uh, The feedback that I hear from a lot of people that pick up uh, just doing deadlifts and haven't done them before is my lower back pain isn't as bad anymore or it's gone. That's like what I very commonly hear. Yep. And planks are great for that. And what's a push-up but a moving plank. So it's just a plank that's a bit more dynamic in nature. And then um, also consider that the fatigue is going to extend past your body. It's also going to affect your brain too. And, and we're talking both on a cognitive level. So, you know, how hard it is to form thoughts and your reaction times, et, et cetera, but also in terms of managing your RPE. So how, how hard it feels over the course of that, you know, miles 60 to 70, 70 to 80, 80 to 90 is just going to escalate upward and upward. Most likely, at least to some degree it will. So again, brace yourself for the fact that I know I'm going to be in a darker and darker place as this goes on. And it might not be that extreme. You might pace it and manage it and nourish it really well, but brace for the fact that it's a, it's a strong possibility. Yeah. I think that, you know, with, with this sort of effort or with these sort of rides, I've also noticed that if I go a long time without going back to doing to, without having done a century, anything like that, a long day, it, it comes as a surprise if I don't prep myself in that regard, like you said, Chad. Uh, it's just I have to be ready for it, right? And so this is something that even if you're not a new rider, it's important to remember that that the the sort of that, that any sort of specificity that you do in your training absolutely pays off on on a day like this. Um, so yeah, absolutely there. Anything else that you guys would want to add for for advice for somebody that's going to be doing a century yeah. like this? I actually tried to distill it down to three points. So so everything we've set aside. Um, RPE or how you feel is always a factor and it's potentially the factor during events like this. I mean, pay attention to how you're feeling. Um, the second part of advice, and it ties very closely to that is don't let the power numbers goad you into overdoing it. You'll know when you start out, you know, maybe mathematically, scientifically on paper, anecdotally based on the shorter rides I've done. And maybe there are things that sell you, I should be able to do this. It depends how you feel, how you feel on the day trumps all of that. So pay close attention to it. And then long rides with uh, some level of nutrition experimentation. So if you haven't done a long ride and you have, you've done 50, you've done 60 miles. So you know that over the course of it, if you're eating the same thing, you experience that palate fatigue we've talked about before. Those things aren't interesting to you anymore. So it becomes harder and harder to ingest them. Um, When you hit the aid stations, there's a lot of potential missteps in terms of nutrition. Foods that maybe you haven't eaten in the past that suddenly you're going to introduce into your diet, into this situation, which, you know, if the intensity is low and you're out there just kind of enjoying your day, probably not a big deal. But if you're pushing it and you're giving yourself new types of nutrition, stuff you're unfamiliar with, I mean, just hitting the, the potato chips and whatever, you'll see all sorts of 
quote junk food out there, which in the moment, you know, it, it's, it's acceptable, but it might not agree with you uh, in terms of your GI system. And then along those same lines is, is over the course of the day, the whole transition that you see with, you know, long, grand tour riders doing long stages where they start with solid foods. And then as they're maybe interest in the foods or their ability to digest them kind of dwindles, they shift to gels and then they shift to liquids, that, that sort of thing. Because mm-hmm. the intensity should be low, low enough throughout that day that you could probably, you probably whatever you know, you take want. down some I want to add <laughs> meat lovers thing. pizza. <laughs> <laughs> to Chad's point, and I think he'll agree with me, when he says RP is always a factor, perhaps the factor, at the very beginning, don't um, let power meter be a governor. Ooh rather than like up because at the beginning, especially, you know, everyone's there, 2000 people, everything feels easy. Mm-hmm. And you yeah. go, well, my power reader's wrong. Like <laughs> it's up by a hundred Watts. Um, and then in like, and then there's a middle part where you're like, you don't, you almost don't want to have the RP is King. And then at the very end of the race, I do use the govern the power meters, like a stick when there's like 15 yes. miles left. I'm like, yeah. I'm not letting it drop below 200 Watts. Cause I know I'm just going to suffer through this. Um, that's kind of like power, how I go through a longer stuff. Absolutely. The power meter is a useful tool the whole time. It's good to have that information, but to, don't let that information paint you into a corner. If you start off at 200 watts and you're like, I feel horrible, but I think I can hold it. <laughs> like stop holding 200 watts. Like, <laughs> yes. like yeah. drop down. It's not going to turn out well. <laughs> yeah. Nate, I do the same thing. I have that like inverse relationship, like, right. Where like, as the race goes on like that, Suddenly the power meter is like my, it's, it's my carrot. And it's like, come on, you can do this. I know you can do this. I know you can hold that number, you know, and I have to remind myself that I can do it. It's a really, it's a really helpful thing in that, in that case for sure. Toward the end. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And to chat, I I just want to just bump one little point about the nutrition. Um, since you don't always know what's going to be available at the aid stations, you don't necessarily want to be relying a hundred percent on the aid stations. Cause if you get into the aid stations and it's something like, I don't know, wood fired pizza or something. It's, I mean, it might not be the thing that's going to fuel you really well or sit well on your stomach. So, you know, plan to bring your own nutrition and then you can supplement with what's at the aid stations, but make sure that you have what you need on the day so that if what is at the aid stations is not something that's going to work for you, you're not, you know, stuck in a food desert out there. Do you guys ever carry like two pounds of gels with you? Like for one of these yes. places? Yes. 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 And you, it feels and, bad. And, you know, what's nice about it though, is when you don't eat all of what you brought, you can be the person that saves other people out there. Cause there will definitely be people out there who are bonking and dying and you can be their guardian angel on the day. Like, Hey, would you like a gel? And the next thing you know, you've just saved somebody's day. So make Cliff, friends out there. T- Cliff, uh, Cliff bar is so smart at this. When they do the longer events where cliff riders ride, they keep their pockets just stuffed with cliff products. And then they look for people who are bonking. They're like, hey, try these uh, chews. And then they have mm-hmm. that experience yeah. and they're like, oh my goodness, the, the wheels are back on the bus and they can yes. just go. Yeah. 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 That's it. It's a, and everyone may laugh at you at first for having those gels, but the very people laughing at you will be thanking you later on. Totally. <laughs> so, Nothing yeah. wrong with being prepared. Yep. Exactly. We just need bigger pockets. That's all. <laughs> uh, so let's uh, go into Christina's question. She says this might be a, she says this might be too basic of a question but I'm wondering about proper riding form that is I've heard all kinds of things about flat back versus rounded back anterior pelvic tilt versus posterior pelvic tilt 
anchored sit bones versus, uh, I guess anything else that wouldn't be anchored sit bones, belly breaths, etc. But I'm a bit confused because some of these guidelines seem contrary to another. And that's before we start talking about aerodynamics. So can you break down basic body position while riding a road bike and offer some simple tweaks to reduce drag without penalizing power? So, uh, this, this, uh, engage the cage match gloves are off and then i guess we can <laughs> all discuss about our own individual opinions because yeah. th- this is something that definitely like there's a lot of opinion in this right yeah. chad and yep. i'm not sure there's one way to ride a bike no there absolutely yes. isn't and and so everything i recommend inside of the tips in the workouts if you have the those instructions turned on you'll see a lot of what she, what christina just described right there and this is my approach it isn't an approach inform an informed approach it's based on something other than just my own experience but I approach it a particular way. Other coaches, other riders may approach, approach it a different way. But the way I see it is the primary aim is, is pain-free power production. You should be able to turn the pedals without hurting yourself or without feeling any unnecessary discomfort. Secondarily is to improve your movement, movement economy and your stability on the bike. So how well you turn the pedals and how well the rest of your, and then how, how well the rest of your body stabilizes. And then thirdly, tertiary that the aerodynamics, the breathing techniques, the body awareness, that all comes into play after those two things are in place. But I do realize that different disciplines will shift those second and third aims. So if you're a time trialist, obviously aerodynamics may be more important than, uh, geez, movement economy, all of them fold very closely though. So that that's, I, I don't mean to throw so much information out there that it, that it distracts from the point, the, but those are the three points and everything I do recommend falls in line with those three points. As far as the flat back versus rounded spine, this is contentious to say the least. There are people who feel strongly one way or the other and it doesn't really seem to be anybody who falls in between. I'm very much a rounded spine athlete. I tried riding flat back for a long while and I realized what it did to my breathing, what it did to my aerodynamics. I kind of looked a little odd on the bike, but rounded spine is the only way you're going to get aerodynamic and keep your sit bones, not necessarily glued to the saddle, but at least keep your pelvis in a pretty neutral position, maybe with a slightly forward anterior tilt. And it's the only way you're going to be able to conjure any level of stability, because if you're not on those sit bones, if you're not anchored, at least to some degree, you're going to float around. That's a power loss. It's uncomfortable. It leads to wear and tear on, on your undercarriage, et cetera. Yeah. It's, it's kind of funny when you look at, so I know that Christina is asking about a road bike, so I apologize, Christina, for deviating here, but like triathlon is and 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 just TT fit the TT bikes in general, that's where we see like extreme bike fit changes, right? Chad, we're like, you know, we're seeing things pushed to the extreme, like you said, where compromises are in place, yeah. but it's the sort of compromise that, you know, the goal is performance. So in the end, it may be what you need to get there. And there are definitely different ways to skin a cat like that. Yeah. But to your point about like the pelvis being stable and being in a normal position, really talking about those like ischial tuber- tuberosities, being able to make steady contact and stay in contact and support you on your saddle, right? Like that's what we're really talking about. Yeah. Those extensions. If you're tipping from to side support. to side, you're just opening yourself up to a, a whole host of issues, whether it's the, the, you know, contact surfaces or, or your crotch, the, the power loss, the break in aerodynamics that happens when you're moving your frame from side to side, none of those things are favorable. So why wouldn't we try to set the bike up to in, in, in such a way and, and adjust our, or address our core stability and our lower abdominal strength and uh, just trunk strength in, in a general sense? Why wouldn't you do that knowing that you have to have a stable platform from which to work? You can't push from something that's, uh, that's, that's floating basically. 
Yeah. yeah. And anchored sit bones will probably look different for different people, right? Like, for, it, it, for like sure. in terms of different you know, levels, pelvises are different. Yeah. Different levels of lumbar flexibility, different levels of uh, ab- abdominal control, different torso lengths to leg lengths. I mean, it's obviously going to encounter a high level of subjectivity, but you have to, ha- you have to have somewhere stable to, to work from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I yeah. have a, um, so when you, when you guys are talking about sit bones for anybody listening, if you just sit on your hands, the two bones that you feel most prominently in your hands, those are your sit bones. Um, and if you think about the pelvic bones on the, on the saddle, if you think of your sit bones as two corners of a triangle and the third corner of the triangle is your pubic bone, um, the two sides of that triangle are what's called your rami. And when I'm sitting on the saddle, for sure, if if I'm if I'm on the tops or on my hoods, my sit bones are nicely anchored. But the second I get into a more arrow position, I'm sitting maybe much more onto those rami, and then definitely getting pressure on that pubic bone as well. So I think um, it's just about finding. It, it, again, it's different for everyone, but you never want to be in a position where you're so far forward that you're, you know, all of your weight is on your pubic bone in a way that's causing severe discomfort. Like it, your position on the bike, especially when it comes to the contact point of the saddle should always be tolerable at the very least. <laughs> and mm-hmm. just know that there are other, there are options out there as far as different types of saddles that will fit different types of pelvises. So pelvises, is that the right? Pelvi. But I think that's one of the, that's definitely one of the more important contact points. And, um, when we're talking about anchoring sit bones, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to put all your weight on your sit bones. Mm -hmm. It can just be a matter of having a saddle that's a little bit flatter in the back so that those two sit bones can't slide down from side to side. As long as they have a platform where they can be stable to Chad's point, you can produce some power when you have a platform to sort of be, be pushing off from. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if that helps at all. Yeah. One thing with this too. So like, uh, so bike fits, like it's, it's like a minefield. It's really tough (laughs) because it's hard to find like a a good bike fitter. If you live in like a non, you know, a a relatively, like even if you don't live in a big city, you probably don't have a lot of choices for a bike fitter. Right. So uh, you kind of have what you have and, and every bike fitter, uh, kind of like you mentioned, Chad, it's like, uh, th- there's the difference between like a lot of informed opinion based on experience and then personal opinion, but also what that experience is. And it's really tough to find yeah. like the right bike fitter. <clears throat> it's, in, it's in your best interest to thoroughly bet your fitter. And that's probably going to come mm-hmm. from recommendations from other athletes, but I found the best fitters typically have a bodywork background. I mean, they're like physical therapists or massage therapists even, um, but but they have an understanding of biomechanics at a deeper level than someone who basically just goes out, gets a certification and sets up shop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one, one thing I've found with coming to some bike fitters is that uh, some of them just look for like a specific cue and they kind of disassociated that from the person and they just say that cue means this adjustment. But I've seen plenty of people that just because of like, a, for me, for example, I've had excessively tight hips for a very long time. And in that period, everyone kept saying, your saddle's too high, your saddle's too high. And it's like, no, like if you look at the knee bend, if anything, I've gone even down to being too low. But because I hadn't worked on mobility, because I hadn't done those things, and I see the same thing develop anytime I'm going really hard in a race or anything else like that, and I my pelvis isn't as stable, right? So like it, it's, it's um, something where 
just because your hips are rocking does not necessarily mean your saddle is too high, does not necessarily mean one thing or another. It's it's a complex thing to kind of refine and to go into. But the point is you need to find what works for your body. Mm-hmm. And, and that is like a process that each person kind of has to go through. That's why some person, the guy riding next to you has a crazy looking saddle and the gal next to you has the saddle that you just hated, right? Mm-hmm. And But for some reason, it's the saddle that, that works for her. So it is, and, and it's going to look different on each person for sure. Yeah. Uh, I think Chad made a really good point about pain-free, you know, power production, but also you don't want to set yourself up for, you know, any kind of a long-term injury either. So I think that's where like the value of a bike fit comes in. It's just, you want to, you know, it's, it's about getting yourself in a comfortable position for right now, but also to prevent any, you know, long-term issues from arising. And I really like what Chad said there, the best bike fitters do usually have a physical therapy or some kind of a body work background on that. Um, and you know, if you're riding your bike and you're pain-free, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I think one of the things I've seen a lot, um, with bike fitters is sort of a, an emphasis on symmetry. None of us are symmetrical and, and most of our bodies are, well, no, our bodies are smart enough to figure out how to compensate effectively for that. And, and in a way that's not going to necessarily cause any long-term injury. Um, and the only caveat I would say with that is if you do end up having any kind of an injury or something like that, go work with a PT because you want to make sure that your body has the stability, the mobility and the effect, the effective range of motion that you need to ride a bike without causing injury. Um, but address those problems with your body first, don't go get a bike fit and have somebody fit your bike to a problematic body because it's just going to make whatever problems or issues or compensatory patterns that you have worse. So you want to address the body first and then the bike and don't, you know, don't get hung up on like symmetry. I have def- I have a pretty significant leg length discrepancy and somebody did give me shims at one point and it really, it, it, my body had figured out how to pedal really efficiently with two legs at different lengths. And then all of a sudden I had this shim in there and it threw a monkey wrench into the whole system and it really threw me off for a long time. So just because you're not symmetrical doesn't mean that you can't produce power in the most efficient manner in an asymmetric way. Um, again, it's just about what's going to work for your body and make sure that your, your body is in good shape first and then, then look at the bike, but don't go to the bike first to fix any issues because sometimes to your point, Jonathan, for you, it was just doing the mobility work off the bike that was going to really resolve those hip issues. It wasn't about raising or lowering your saddle per se. Yeah. And to nail that home, that is such a good point. I I don't want to say that this is an absolute indication, but every PT and bike fitter that I've worked with that hasn't been very good. Like the first thing they do is they go, Oh, you've got a big leg length. discrepancy." (laughs) Like they try to make me feel unique. And it's like, everyone has a leg length discrepancy. Nobody is even, (laughs) Oh, chiropractors chiropractors do that too. They're like, Oh, like your legs are different. How do you survive? (laughs) You need to see 10 times a week. Yeah. Not all of them. (laughs) True. Yeah. 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 Whenever they lay you down and then like, they like, when they lay you down, chances are your legs aren't going to be perfectly even. They're like, look at this. You're broken. Like, it's like, you know, it's like. What a disaster. (laughs) Your hips are off. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, exactly. So it's definitely, uh, definitely something to keep in mind. Uh, Amber, what other, so specifically, and sorry, this may be jumping ahead in your notes really quick or on this, but we've talked about saddle the saddle discovery journey that each person goes on and how that also will change over time. But specifically on women's saddles, because I don't feel like they're now we're getting more options, but there haven't been a lot of women specific saddles for a very long time. Um, how, 
do you go about finding, how do you go about finding the right saddle? Maybe you want to share what that saddle is. I don't know. And, <laughs> and kind of like good recommendations for that. Well, I was in the unfortunate position of being sponsored for many years. So there were a lot of times when I was not allowed to be on the saddle that I wanted to be on and that caused a lot of problems. So, um, first of all, choice is number one, you have choices. And what I recommend to everybody is, um, go talk to your local shop. First of all, just know that saddle comfort is a huge issue for every single person who rides bikes ever in the history of riding bikes. This has always been <laughs> a major issue. So this is not an uncommon topic to bring up. So don't feel like, you know, you don't need to feel uncomfortable or awkward walking into your shop and saying, Hey, I'm having some saddle discomfort. Chances are your shop, everybody in your shop has experienced something similar. Uh, it's a, it's a familiar question and most shops will be pretty well equipped to help you help guide you to a different type of saddle. The other thing is a lot of shops have demo saddles, so you don't have to commit to a $250 saddle before you've tried it. You can try out different brands, different shapes, different designs. Um, and I do recommend, you know, do some significant riding on a saddle. Cause sometimes it's hard to discover what those hotspots are, you know, on just like a quick little ride, but you know, give it, give it a, you know, most shops will let you take it out for a week or two and just test one out and see what you think and then come back and give feedback like, Hey, this is what I really liked about it. This is what I didn't. And then that'll help your shop guide you to maybe another model that might work really well for you. So I, I really think for, mm -hmm. for anybody, I mean, it's really hard to say like, you know, this type of saddle is going to be good for women or this one. I mean, I know a lot of guys that really, really like women's saddles and then they feel kind of awkward. Cause they're just like, well, is it going to be weird if I buy a women's specific saddle? No, just whatever works for your body. That's, you know, it's just, just think of it as there's a bunch of designs out there. There's a bunch of different body shapes and types out there. And you just need to go find the saddle that's going to work for you, whatever that happens to be. It took me like years of finding like, and, and also I think it's worth saying it's not like my saddle now. Like I never, ever have discomfort ever. Right. Like you still, everybody will have moments of discomfort, even on their favorite saddle that they've chosen. It's just, that's what happens it, you know, uh, you're sitting on something and you're pedaling your bike. Right. I think yeah. all of us probably can, can attest to that, even though we found the saddle that we like, or we may be searching for that, whatever else, but it, you still experience discomfort at times. Oh, definitely. And if, for, <laughs> I remember getting my first, like, uh, finding a saddle. I went to a bike shop. A guy put me on a old mag train or old wind trainer and it had me really high. And then he was like, all right, now riding the drops. And I was like, really new. And I was like, I never touched those things down there. I don't know what they are. <laughs> so like, I was like riding in the drops with my back end, super high, my front end, super low. And, and he was like, yep, that saddle's all wrong. Your hips are rocking. And I was like, <laughs> oh man, here it is. This guy's solving all my problems. And it definitely, and I, I got that saddle and I was like, yeah, this is perfect in that moment. And then I went out and rode and it was really uncomfortable. And then I went through the process. I went to a different shop. And then after that, I was like, okay. Uh, what test saddles do you have? And to that point, our sh the shop that I was using locally was fantastic with that. And they were basically like, yep, test saddle as long as you want. It's ugly. And it's, it was like lime green or something. <laughs> or like, you know, then th that was probably for that purpose, but I was able to ride a saddle for a week or two and then switch and find ones that I liked. And also just because you found a saddle that you like does not mean that it's going to be the saddle for you forever. Yeah. Like your body changes. And when it changes, you may need a different saddle, especially if you take some time off the bike, something like that, it, it can definitely change, right? Yeah. And your fit can change over the course of a season as you're doing strength and mobility work, as you're spending more time on the bike, um, how you're going to fit, fit and feel on your bike can change. So you might be able to get a little bit more aggressive with your position as the season goes on, depending on what's going on. Um, but I would just say, you know, 
if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If you feel good, you can ride, you can produce power. You're generally pain-free. You're not uncomfortable all of the time. I mean, again, to your point, sometimes it happens and it's kind of, it's, it's bound to happen from time to time. But I mean, as long as, you know, as long as you're relatively pain-free and relatively comfortable, you're doing it right. And then address issues as they arise. Like you don't need to go get like a whole complete overhaul on your bike fit. Um, again, body first, you know, consult with a PT or somebody who has a bodywork background, see what's going on. Maybe there's some, you know, compensatory patterns that are arising. Um, and then just make sure that you're making incremental and gradual changes. If you're going to make any ch- changes at all, because, um, you know, we are pedaling as a repetitive motion. You don't want to throw your, throw too much at your body all at once and potentially, um, aggravate something. So, you know, only make changes if they work for you and make gradual incremental changes. If you do need to make changes. Mm-hmm. What saddles does everybody use here right now? And Amber, I don't know if you have some sort of contractual obligation to not mention <laughs> it. So no worries if you don't have to, but no, 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 uh, I okay, don't have what a, do you use a specialized power, the widest version. Um, that's like one sixty five or something like that. Mm-hmm. One way to, that you can figure out the width a lot of the time too, is that like one sixty five doesn't mean one hundred and sixty five millimeters. I don't think, or something like that. Like it's, it's, kind of like a, it's not an exact number like that. So, uh, one thing you can do though, is just fill a Ziploc bag full of flour and sit on that thing. And then at least you can say like, well, I have this, this, and you'll see your sit bones when you sit on that, uh, when you sit on the flour and kind of lean forward too, when you do that, and it'll make a more pronounced press in with those, uh, with those sit bones. But then that way, at least you have kind of like a, a, a ballpark so that, cause if you don't have bike shops and you have to go through the process of buying these things online and then returning them, something like that, it, a lot of online retailers, I think competitive cyclist has like a, a return program that you can do with that for, for saddles. So if that's the case, at least you'll know your sit bone width. So you have a good point to start on. It's 168 before we get corrections sent in. <laughs> oh, cool. 168. <laughs> there we are. Uh, Chad, how about you? Uh, <clears throat> these days I get Nate's hand-me-downs. So it's whatever Nate did like. <laughs> I think it's the same style he just described, but maybe slightly narrower. Is that right, Nate? Yeah, you have the 155. Yeah. Got it. Or the 143. Amber? One of those. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Amber, how about you? Do you know uh, which saddle you're using now? Yeah. Um, I So I have really liked the ISM Adamo saddle in the past, but I've been on, uh, lately I've been riding the Prologo Dimension, and I really like that one. Uh, the ISM Adamo uh, solved a lot of problems for me, but what I find with the Prologo Dimension is I can move around a little bit more on it. There's more positions on it that are comfortable for me, which is just kind of nice because if I do end up with any kind of a hotspot, I can find another spot on it that works. And the Adamo's snub nose, right? So you can't yes. slide forward on the saddle. Right. Yeah. Yeah, not just snub nose, but open nose, right? It's like mm-hmm. the split nose in the front mm-hmm. uh, because the power like you are on is a snub nose. Technically, I think they call it a lot yeah. of the time. But, but I have uh, the, well, I don't even have the Adamo on TT bike anymore. Now I have whatever uh, physique's uh, equivalent is where they just lopped yeah. off the front of the saddle, basically. <laughs> <laughs> just harsh chop. Yeah. And now, now I know that Amber and I use the same saddle and we're ah. almost the same height. 
So Amber, if we're ever riding together, we can just like, you know, if you flat, just take my bike and you can just swap <laughs> like that. That's perfect. Teamwork. <laughs> yeah. Prologo Dimension 143. They have like a mountain. Also, a lot of companies have like, well, this is a mountain bike saddle and this is a road saddle. And once again, to your point, Amber, who cares what sort of saddle it is? If it yeah. matches your pelvis, then that's what you have. It's funny. I got that question on Instagram and somebody said, why do you use the same bike on your gravel bike as you do on your mountain bike? And I was same like, saddle. Well, I use the same pelvis yeah. mm-hmm. or same saddle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, well, I use the same pelvis on both. So, like, you know, like, like so that's why. Um, it, when you get into like TT bikes that do strange fits, that's when, you know, you probably want to look at something different. But anything else that y'all would want to add on to this uh, for, for bike fit? I feel like, Christina, you've probably understood now it's individual and it is a process to go through. But comfort is the main thing. After comfort, then you can start to talk about, you know, then you start talking about performance after that. I have one thing to say is, especially if you're getting more, um, arrow, like more aggressive or your TT position, a fitter will often say you will adapt to this. And I'd say if your comfort's a 10 and then your new comfort's an eight, well, you, maybe you will adapt to it, but I've had it with multiple fitters where I'm at maybe a seven for comfort and they put me in a one or two and they're like, don't worry about it. Like you'll do it. And like, these are high level, (laughs) like, kind of famous bike fitters and I can't, um, this is not Dan Anfield, but other people to be named nameless. Uh, and I just couldn't hold it. Like I, after like two weeks, I had to change it back because I like literally probably five minutes and I, I couldn't hold it any longer. So don't, yeah, just because they say you'll adapt, like push back and be like, no, I need a little more comfort than this. Mm -hmm. You should probably look at bike fits as like consultants. Like mm-hmm. you're getting opinions and you're getting everything else, but that, that, that isn't necessarily like gospel. Like this is the way to go about it. You it's, know? it's a two way street. And if you're saying back to this person, Hey, this is, this is too uncomfortable for me to ride. And they're like, no, don't worry about it. That's probably not the bike fitter you want. A good yeah. bike fitter will say, okay, let's see what we can do to change this. Yeah. Yeah. I apologize right now. If you hear a dump truck, once again, we're all in this together working from <laughs> home. So, um, <laughs> Uh, with that, I think that that covers it for this week. Uh, we've definitely hit our time uh, uh, on on the podcast for this week. So first of all, thank you so much for submitting questions to the podcast. You can do so at trainerroad.com slash podcast. You keep doing it every week and it's awesome. We love reading them all. You should head over to our YouTube channel and subscribe so then you can see all of us do this ramp test together on Monday. And you should go to trainerroad.com so you can train with group workouts. It'd be awesome. And finally, if you haven't given it a thumbs up yet, this is definitely the time to do it on YouTube. And extra finally, you should watch Beers with Chad. Tomorrow. Here's the chat. Yeah. Tomorrow too. Join us awesome. all. Yep. Amber and I will be trolling in the comments. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> High five. All right, everybody. We'll see you all next week. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.